stay a while and listen. Welcome to episode number eight of the Square Waves FM podcast. We are coming to you live in uh, this, the season of Vishnu. Uh, as always, my name is Brian. Very glad to have you all aboard with us. And uh, with me today is... Dr. Morales. <laughs> You're the, the prognosis for your survival is not high with a last name like Morales. I've heard, but we have to, we have to break the cycle. I want to be the first... I want to be the first, you know, Spanish Morales to have survived. I'm actually not Spanish. What am I doing? That's okay. Moving on. Hi, everybody. It's Chris. It's good to see you or hear from you or um, talk to you all again. I've uh, been looking forward to this episode. I think we're going to, before I, before we do any of that, I just wanted to say that um, we're going to do part two of our multiplayer episode. Um, we had a great time last week with Francisco mm-hmm. and this time it's just back to Brian and I, so old romantic love story once again Mm -hmm. nice and intimate yeah and uh, really glad to be talking about the multiplayer stuff again we got some uh, terrific stories from uh, Francisco before we did our first uh, multiplayer one that we didn't get the time to uh, get to so they're really really good stories so I'm looking forward to uh, reading all those this time and uh, speaking of our very good friend Francisco who is in San Francisco no relation I'm sure uh, and he's no saint, as we all learned from uh, our last episode. Um, I uh, We want to give him an extra special congratulations for the very uh, impressive lauding that he has had by the one and only Brian Moriarty, um, who is the creator of Loom, and I don't even know how many other LucasArts adventures. But uh, I don't know either, but I was I was blown away. Um, do you want to do you want to tell do you want to repeat the story for? Anybody who didn't hear from Francisco over the week? On oh, Twitter? for sure, for sure. So, um, first off, Francisco, uh, he mentioned on our podcast last time um, that he was hoping to make it to the Loom postmortem with Brian Moriarty, which, uh, when he tweeted his pass that uh, permitted him to that event, I uh, gave him my thumbs up. I'm glad that he able to he was able to make it there. So, one very impressive thing. I don't know whether he uh, he told you about this as well, Chris. But uh, one impressive thing that Brian Moriarty mentioned was that if anyone, if any company were to theoretically take over the Loom franchise, he would only entrust it with Telltale Games, Double Fine, and Wajedi Games. Oh man, I, I when Beautiful. I heard that, uh, Francisco sent me a quick text and said, "Hey, you know, Sir Brian Moriarty said my heart stopped." I thought that was like the best, like lumping together Wadget with, you know, those two other massive companies was just like the coolest news ever. And congratulations to Francisco, and also that means Ben and Dave and Janet and everyone over at Wadget, I just thought, whoa, I mean, what a cool, what a cool piece of news. That's gigantic praise. And those other two studios are from uh, 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 ex-LucasArts alumni, aren't they? Dave Grossman at Telltale and uh, Tim Schafer at Double Fine. So those are people that he's worked with personally, I I think. Yeah, so I mean, for for, uh, Dave's company to be uh, part of that exclusive club is really something, because he... He and his team just earned their way up to that extremely impressive uh, pinnacle. So that's well. It's funny, you know. I was good. thinking about I was thinking about Wadjet. I you know the, the last couple of weeks, and 
what I find with Wadjadai games is that they're um, the most LucasArts-like of any adventure games that have come out in the last 10 years. Um, they seem to just follow, like, you know, even UI and... The, they tend to follow the, you know, the no dead ends, the LucasArts, what was it called? The LucasArts um, um, uh, style of making adventure games. No dead ends, no what you can't die on every single screen. Oh, that does that have thing. a name? Yeah, it's called, um, it was written by, oh shit, uh, it was written by Ron Gilbert in about 1980-something. Um, hmm. And it was called the LucasArts Philosophy on Games or something like that. Somebody correct me, it might have not actually been Ron Gilbert, but I think it was. Um, and or it, yeah, I think it's called the LucasArts philosophy. And I thought it was just like a really interesting thing to me that Dave, if you look at the entire Blackwell series and um, a Golden Wake, uh, Primordia, uh, what else is there out there? There's um, uh, Emerald City Confidential. Um, all of those titles kind of follow the same pattern, which is kind of don't don't drive your player to madness, um, you know. Um, trying to complete the game, our goal is to tell a story. Um, yeah, I really do appreciate that. I like that as as infrequent it is that you will die in a LucasArts yeah. or a Wedgedi game, for that matter, um, they will always give you the opportunity to go right back to a moment before you made that fatal step. It was just kind of a, a flourish of uh, storytelling, but uh, not yeah. something to trip you up or to make you replay a whole huge thing. I do appreciate yeah, that a exactly. lot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I and, and I think that's like a huge division from the Sierra style. Um, you know, we talked about that last last episode. That Sierra literally planned to kill you on every single screen, and it was just part of the trademark. I think for good or for bad, um, Sierra just had to develop that style very early on, and LucasArts went the opposite direction. So it's, yeah, it was no surprise at all to me that when Brian Moriarty said, you know, included Wajid Eye Games with, you know, two multi tens of millions of dollar companies that I was just like, yeah, that totally makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And then so, after the fact, then, um, Brian Moriarty was chatting with Francisco or perhaps vice versa, and perhaps the two were even chatting with each other, now that I'm tripping over the sentence, but uh, <laughs> Brian mentioned to Francisco that he had played and very much enjoyed A Golden Wake, which is so cool just to have someone so influential uh, to not only play your game, but to have a good time with it and to compliment you on it. That is just an enormous compliment. So good oh, for you, Francisco. Like, We're really happy for you. I got misty-eyed when Francisco said that. And, uh, oh, man, I can't imagine better praise. Um, mm-hmm. You know, most of us spend our lives growing up playing these games by people like Brian Moriarty or, you know, I was thinking of when, when Francisco told me he was going to go see the Loom, um, the Loom postmortem, I was just, died inside i was like that's, that's about the coolest you know postmortem i could ever imagine going to a gdc just both on a design level and a technical level and to get you know that kind of feedback from the man himself is wow yeah that's incredible i mean they say don't meet your heroes because inevitably one of you is going to disappoint the other but for the two of them right. to have impressed each other so much that's just like unprecedented so yeah wow. good man francisco oh, we're really proud for you congrats francisco that that made my whole week i'm sure it more than made yours <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I, I think he had a, a really unearthly, fantastic week, as w- people often do at these GDC things. So I hear. I would love to go sometime. I really would, but uh, I don't I, know whether I, I qualify. Nice... <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do. You've you've got a. Well, we should talk about that sometime. You've actually got a credit on a commercial game under your belt. I have a few, I, I guess. I have a few. Mind blowing, man. I'm not really a professional still, but uh, I, I do have my name on a few commercial games. And, 
you could, you could call yourself like a veteran veteran of the industry. You're retired. <laughs> yeah, sure. A veteran, veteran like, part-time volunteer. Yeah, it's like it's like that episode of Simpsons where Bart plays Homer in the boxing game and then retires a champion. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right, the video boxing. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that's the other thing. If you want to, I want to blow everyone's mind. Imagine this. Imagine Loom repainted by our dear friend Ben Chandler. Oh, that's such a good fit, too, because they both kind of have this, like, unearthly, glowy sort of a, a, a aesthetic to it. Ben would be exactly. ideal for that, wouldn't he? Oh, I was just like, my, my jaw dropped after, the first thought was like, wow, congrats, Francisco, congrats, Dave. And then the second thought was like, oh, my God, just, like, let Ben push some pixels to the screen that, like, glow and let him animate the living shit out of that seagull on the, oh, man. Or, or like, I just, like, I could imagine all of Loom repainted Ben 304 style. And, um, mm-hmm. oh, man. Well, I think imagining is probably as far as we're going to make it, because Francisco followed up uh, on the conversation saying that the uh, trademarks for Loom are kind of tangled up in licensing hell, so it's an unlikely oh, no. is this, thing. Is this with, like, Disney owning uh, LucasArts now? No doubt. No doubt. Mm. Yeah, Dis- Disney is not Ooh. the most uh, sharing of uh, intellectual properties, no doubt. Well, the only solution is to, to pull the... Uh, it's an Arcane Studios route, which is just make it an unofficial sequel like they did with uh, Arx Fatalis and uh, Ultima Underworld 3. Yeah, that's right. They'll make a game called Spindle or something. <laughs> oh, or it- itchy yeah, Sweater. Damn, man. That, that's a good title. <laughs> Spindle. Spindle. All right. It's like this. <laughs> all right. All you right, can have that one for free, uh, company, Wedge Dave. and I. <laughs> that's, that's all yours. <laughs> all right. So, uh... Do we have any listener feedback we want to talk about? Oh yeah, yeah. We uh, we have uh, we have some corrections. If you'll believe it, for the first time ever, we are being corrected by our our astute listeners. So oh uh, good. I'm I'm kind of I was kind of worried that you know I might have actually said something true or factual in the last episode. I, I know we 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 do our best to be as as uh, cavalier and pie in the sky with our with our statements as possible. Pie in the sky software. <laughs> mm-hmm. At some point, we'll have to talk about that company. Um, but anyway, yes, continue. <laughs> okay. Um, Amirat Akago, thank you very much for pointing out that the Rama series of books and the games based upon them were actually by Arthur C. Clarke and not by Isaac Asimov. Um, oh, did I say Asimov? Oops. I think I did, and you agreed with me or something like that, so so I'm, oh, I'm going to share the blame that, with you then. <laughs> that's like the first time I feel actually really guilty about like screwing that up. Yeah, that's totally an Asimov book, and... Uh, um, Clark it, book. So we didn't. We, so it was a Sierra game in the end. At least I got that right. Yeah, it is a Sierra game, and I'm certain that there must have been some game based, at least one game based on Asimov's books. But this one was an oh, Arthur yeah, C. Clarke one. Th- there were there were at least two that I knew of. Um, one was called Rendezvous with Rama, and it was a actually this is an amazing game that no one talks about. Um, I hope at some point Jim Leonard or Trickster listens to this because he's like the only guy I know that really cares about early, early, early. Well, other than you and maybe Anatoly, early 80s stuff. Mm. Um, it was a game by... Have you ever heard of a text adventure company called Trillium? Don't think so. Yeah, they were um, they were really cool. They actually were like a, a worthy competitor to um, Infocom, and they made text adventures generally based on books um, in the early 80s, and they were all graphical. They were really, really like outstandingly good. Hmm. Um, one was called uh, Rendezvous with Rama, and it was a direct a direct retelling of the book, and it was an amazing game. And they came in these gorgeous, like, LP-sized, like, uh, I don't know what you call them, like, 
um, 78 style record uh, cases. Oh, that's cool. And, a text adventure oh, yeah, came in a record case? Uh, what's that, sorry? A, a text adventure came in like a record sleeve? Yeah, and, hmm. and, and the cool thing was it was like a fold-out. You know when you had like a triple record or double record that kind of fold open? Yeah. Yeah, it was in one of those things, and there was like the discs on one side in a pouch, and on the other side the manuals, and they had this huge fold-out art. Um, if anybody is listening to this, please, please, please go look up Trillium Software. Um, check out the Rendezvous with Rama cover art, as well as another one called Fahrenheit 451 based on Ray Bradbury's book. Ah. Um, yeah, they were they were like an incredibly good company that nobody talks about. Um, I think there was they were called Trillium and Trillian or something like that. They had two they had two different company names, um, but with the same logo. So anyway, yeah, I know one was Rendezvous with Rama, and then I think Sierra in the mid or late '90s released Rama, which was kind of uh, a very very visually more visually impressive version of the same kind of game. Okay, and remember, Rama yeah. is the Arthur C. Clarke. That's not Asimov. Yes, exactly. That was our correction. So was there an Asimov game that you had in mind? Oh, I'm oh sorry, there was I, I misheard you. Uh, I misheard you. <laughs> sure. No, I'm, I'm sure uh, there, was, there was at least one Asimov game. I mean, it's it's incredible to think that no one would make a game based on such a prolific science fiction author. You know what's really funny? Um, the only one I know of is um, almost everyone was influenced by the Foundation series. Yeah, um, doing space trading games, but no one actually—I don't think there were actually any foundation games, which is kind of funny. Ah, yeah, that's true. Which, just, which blows my mind because it's like the best possible topic to make. Like, did you ever read Foundation by uh, Curiosity? No, no, I know of them, and I know I know oh. a little bit of how the first one goes. Yeah, it's a trilogy, it's is it, or is it a series? It's now a series. I think it was originally just a trilogy, and then they kind of, you kind of went up to book seven or something before he died. Okay, um, but. Yeah, like intergalactic space trading happening over a ten thousand year history. Like, what better topic could there be for a computer game? But no one actually licensed it or used it. Hmm. That I know of. Um, please, please correct me if I'm wrong. If anybody knows, and I was trying to think of the other Asimov books I know, and I honestly, am I? Confu- I'm still confusing. Oh, there's a phone. Of course. Of course. Um, was there an iRobot um, game? Yeah, that's what I was trying to think of. Is there an iRobot game? I, I just don't know. Don't think so, to be honest. Maybe the surest fire way for us to find out is for us to just say something definitive and then get it wrong and have our listeners correct us? That's a perfect thing. So, yeah, I, I heard that there's an iRobot game published by Dynamics in about 1992. Yeah, that's right. Um, I heard that Infinity Ward based one of their Call of Duty games on iRobot. Oh, probably like Call of Duty Modern Warfare 5. I, oh, yeah, I, definitely. Yeah, that I think that's got to be it. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so write in if you've played Call of Duty 5 or um, or the original uh, iRobot, um, either one, and we'd love to hear from you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, such responsible journalists. <laughs> All right, next up, we, we have... Kotaku of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, burn. Next up, we have uh, Trolls. Hello, Trolls, Mr. Space Quest historian, who uh, comes through true to form, Um saying that Roger Wilco in Space Quest Four was voiced by a professional actor named Jeff, oh. Jeff Bender. And he had a good voice, as I recall, as well. I didn't play very much of the Space Quest Four CD-ROM one. I owned it on uh, on floppy, and that's definitely the way that I preferred to play most of those games, because however many uh, professional actors they were, they were definitely surrounded by a bunch of amateurs, and that might even be putting it nicely. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I never once have played the CD-ROM version of Space Quest 4, so I don't even know what any of the voices sound like, except for the, um, I remember listening to the Space Quest uh, Historian podcast, Thank You Trolls, and um, hearing the uh, hearing the narrator's voice, he, he had picked some really good uh, narrator voice clips for it. And, oh, that's uh, right, Owens, Gary Owens. Yeah, R.I.P. yeah, exactly, and I thought that was fantastic, but you know what? Trolls brought up one related to this on the same topic. You played the floppy version too. I only played the floppy version. Did you know that? Do you remember the music that you get for the copy protection screen? That's like doom, 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 do 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 doom. Oh yes, that's right. I do. You played like kind of like on a xylophone or something like that. It's really cutesy sounding music. Yeah. Um, did you know that that's cut out of the CD-ROM edition? Oh well, is there copy protection on the CD-ROM? Edition? No, they they cut it out completely uh, according to the uh, Trolls' podcast. So mm-hmm. people like were deprived of like the best musical theme in that entire game because <laughs> it's so cute. Like it's like the cutest music on earth. Oh, it is cute, isn't it? Yeah, that was part of that wonderful golden era where uh, all the software developers assumed, oh, nobody's going to have a, a burnable CD-ROM drive or they can't store 700 megabytes of data on their hard drive, so we don't need copy protection. The medium itself is the copy protection. What are you going to do with all that space? Yeah, there was like a year or so, I believe, where that's, that was the case. That was just terrific. That made it so much yeah, easier for exactly. us. Yeah, exactly. I actually didn't get a CD-ROM burner for a long, long, long time after that. Um, it took me at least five years uh, to get one of those things, to be honest. Well, my dad had one at his work, and then we got one a few years later. I think CD-ROM burners came out sometime around when, like, four-speed CD-ROM readers yes. were out. So uh, what right. was your what was your first CD-ROM drive, the speed, or oh, anything? Do you remember? Thank you for asking. I've been meaning to bring that up. I'll never forget it. It was uh, uh, an MKE Electronics uh, double speed. So it was like Matsubishi, or no, sorry, Mitsumi... Oh, Hayabushi it was, or something. Matsushita, maybe? Matsushita Kotobuki. That's what it was. I think that was my first uh, one, too. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, I had a single-speed one. You you first, and then I'll tell my story. Oh, okay. Well, mine was in a, a IBM 486 PS1, so the SX33 edition, mm-hmm. um, which is like I've spent literally the last 10 years trying to find uh, uh, that old IBM PS1, and I've never been able to find one. There was like the perfect PC gaming box for the 90s, um, it came with a Sound Blaster 16, like an actual, um, like, real Sound Blaster 16, mm-hmm. and the MKE Electronics, um, so the Matsushita Kodoboki um, CD-ROM with a double speed, which had, like, a play and a stop button on it, which was really cool, so you could actually play CDs with it with a little um, uh, headphone jack on the front. But the yeah, a lot of them had that then. Yeah. Did yours have the crazy thing was mine was not IDE. It was not compatible with an IDE controller. Um, oh, I don't remember. I didn't install mine myself. I don't remember the details of how it plugged into the machine. Oh, see, mine plugged in directly to the Sound Blaster. The, oh, yeah. There was like some kind of like multimedia PC uh, that's sort right. of a standard where the Sound Blaster was the hub of some sort. Exactly. The Sound Blaster actually did all of your like data uh, IDE bus routing. Well, it wasn't even an IDE bus. It was some sort of a TAPI-related right. bus. I don't know. Um, but I remember um, it was the exact same size as an IDE connection, but I'm pretty sure that it didn't work in an IDE port if you plugged it in. Huh, that's really neat. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm realizing now that in a couple of weeks we're going to be covering early CD-ROM games, so perhaps we should save the specifics of our stories for then. Yes. 
Good point. All right. So let's do that. Sorry to whet your appetite there, uh, folks, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll put a call out to you all that if you have any positive memories of your old CD-ROM games, we're going to cover it in a couple of weeks with a very special uh, guest joining us as well. Oh, yeah. Please send in please send any stories, especially like love them or hate them um, kind of stories, because I'm guaranteeing we're going to have like a lot of, um, what's the word, extreme opinions on um, interactive video kind of games, uh, a.k.a. Uh, uh, Rebel Assault, that kind of stuff. So, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, the, the way it's been going, it seems that you and I, our uh, extreme opinions have been kind of swinging on the side of positive. The, the games that everybody yeah. else seems to hate, you and I have found some love for. So, I'm not, in I'm your not face, listeners. Yeah, I'm not a either. hater by, by, by temperament, so mm-hmm. I, I can probably find anything to love in a game. And I'm sure I've got exceptions there somewhere, but I haven't hit them yet in our podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we'll get more into that uh, when that time comes. Uh, last bit of uh, pre-show news that I want to give. Why am I calling it pre-show news? We're showing now. Uh, the last bit of uh, news that I'm going to give is uh, that we discussed either a week or two ago um, about some uh, a little bit about monochrome games for the uh, Apple platform. Oh, yeah. And so right now the there's a weekly Humble Bundle going on for monochrome games. That so there's is amazing. Some, there's some beautiful, really striking-looking stuff on there, but the one game that I really want to bring to everyone's attention, because I think we do have a lot of adventure game fans on here, is a Canadian game called Dominique Pamplemousse by oh. uh, Deirdre Kiai. Wait, uh, Deirdre is Canadian? Yeah, she is from Vancouver. Oh, that's insane. I always thought she was from uh, New Zealand or something. Oh really? No, no. She's a she's a Canadian. I think she is uh, Persian by uh, ethnicity, oh, but uh, she's that's uh, wild. born and raised in Canada. I made a lot of Canada. assumptions based on the last name, so that's wild. Yeah, it's one of those last names. It does sound like kind of a a, a Kiwi sort of a thing. Yeah, did, um... <laughs> did you play that did... game, Dominique Pamplemousse? No, and I, I was when when she was working on it, I was really excited about it. Isn't this one hand animated with claymation or something like that, or with yeah, um, exactly. Paper? It's yeah. with yeah, it's with claymation, and I think she like made these little dioramas for her sets, and she filmed them. So it has this right. really otherworldly, very unique look that you're not going to find anywhere else. Not only that, but it's like a musical adventure where she plays instruments and sings. Uh, oh, and really? So all of the uh, characters have these little soliloquies that they uh, do these expositions in song, which is <laughs> extreme. That's extremely cute, but it does this really cool technological thing where they will be singing along with the background music. The background right. music is just like playing and gives you the freedom to look at things or to interact with things at your own right. pace. But whenever somebody starts to sing, they kind of wait for the the the, the four or two bars or so to start oh. looping, and then they start singing there. So oh, that's, that's like mon- Curse of Monkey Island style. I love it. Oh, does it do that in that game too? I haven't played too much of that one. Oh, that's the one where um, uh, a pirate I was meant to be. When they sing that, uh, when Guybrush goes on the ship to convince the pirates to, you know, to actually uh, sail the ship, um, it has like the most amazing, exactly the same thing. They they take advantage of IMUs keeping track of the, uh, the each bar. And um, if you chime in with your next phrase of, of the song, it waits till it hits the right bar. It's exactly the same thing. That's cool. I didn't know she did that. Oh, yeah, yeah. She did, a, she did quite a good job of it. Like, the singing isn't ex- always exactly, like, on uh, the rhythm, but right. it's good enough. And it's synchronized, at least at the beginning of every phrase that she sings, if not, like, every Ooh. word. 
So she does a really good job of it. There's a lot of cool risk-taking in that game, and it's fun thematically. It's beautiful. It's a short little game. It has jokes. I totally recommend it. And if it's on the Humble Bundle, I think it was on the, the lowest tier. You can, like, contribute a penny if you want to and play it for peanuts. But, oh, uh, that's amazing. Well, be a good digital citizen and give them at least a, a pittance of some sort. <laughs> it's a real good one. Oh, that's great. Uh, so why was it included in the monochrome bundle? Oh, because it is monochrome. You're kidding me, really? It's a claymation diorama uh, filmed monochrome musical adventure game. It is like oh, the most ridiculous combination of factors. So if that's just describing the game is kind of whimsical and playing the game is even more so. Oh, that's very cool. If um, I'm, You know me, I'm a huge fan of monochrome, especially the era that Macintosh introduced, which was high-res mon- monochrome with um, Cosmic Osmo and uh, the manhole, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's amazing stuff. So, yeah. Oh, super cool. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very worthwhile. All right. So let's move along. Do we along have any then. other listener corrections? No more listener corrections. I'm, wow. I'm sure that we've already generated five or six just with our little <laughs> preamble, but uh, no, no more, no more gotchas as far as I know up to this point. Oh, good to so, hear. So good for us. So thanks as always for uh, for uh, squawking and uh, speaking up, listeners. We love to hear your stories, whether it's related to our topics or not. If you've got anything nerdy and nostalgic, then this is definitely the medium for you. By all means, write in or leave us a voicemail or whatever, and we'll be happy to to talk about it. Yes, and for some reason, the second you said squawk, the only thing I could think of was, it's like, rock title! And it was like that stupid bird from Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Do you remember that stupid bird? (laughs) No. (laughs) It's like this bird you see at the very start of the game, and you're trying to get into this temple, and you have to, like, guess the name of... I can't remember. It's like Plato's something-something. And you go up... <laughs> did you ever play Fate of Atlantis? Uh, yes, but uh, was there a CD-ROM version and a floppy version? I don't remember playing yes, it voices. Yes, there were. Or do I? I don't oh, remember this bird anyway. Oh, the really, really good. Huh. It's one of, like, the rare exception exceptions to the 90s where the voices were, like, fantastic. Well, LucasArts always does a good job of that. That's true, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Derailed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> squawk. Yeah. So, uh, tell us what, uh, what have you been playing this week, Chris? Oh, um, I have been playing games this week. So, Good. um, I, what have I been playing? Oh, to, um, I realized I kind of wanted to keep going with the text adventure thing because I honestly, text adventures were some of the first games I played as a kid but I kind of quickly moved on, and I never got exposed to, for instance, the Infocom games when I was young. So I've been trying to trace back my and rewrite history by playing some of the classics. Um, so I mentioned I played uh, um, Planetfall. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't really sure where to go from there, so I didn't really want to play Stationfall, which is the Steve Maresky sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided to change things up by playing two other games which are very, very different thematically, but are equally amazing one is even got more fantastic writing than I can imagine. Um, one's called Ballyhoo. Have you heard of this one? Maybe. It is hands down the ugliest, scariest fucking box I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it's like the it's like a circus, um, and it has like this this clown on the front cover, which just totally gives me the heebie-jeebies. I hate that cover. Um, but Ballyhoo is basically you are attending a circus, and I've only played in, like, the first hour of it so far, but I've gotten probably about through a quarter of the game. 
Um, and it's just like full of interactivity, full of these... I'm realizing it's an Infocom like trademark to have these live action sequences that happen that you can either see and witness or miss completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, they, and they just kind of continue without you. So you're kind of swept up in the story or you're not. And, um, oh, I just had so much fun. So I, I snuck away out of the circus tent at the very start of the game and I wandered everywhere. I couldn't find anything to do. Picked up a bunch of stuff, but I wasn't sure what to do with it. And then I just got this prompt that said, out of the corner of your ear, you hear some hushed voices uh, behind the tent. So I was just like, oh, listen to hushed voices. And it's like, you can't quite make out what they're saying, but they seem to be coming nearer. And I'm like, oh, shit, oh, shit. And I just typed hide. And the funny thing is, um, Infocom's famous for, you know, giving you kind of asshole responses like, hide behind what? Or where would you like to stow it? Or can you be more specific? Or uh-huh. And this time, I loved that it was just like, you find the nearest tall object, which happens to be a stand, stand-up tall of um, this President Taft, and you hide behind it. Oh, that's a really rare treat. You, yeah, usually they want you to qualify your request, or you have to define exactly. what, like, what form of the verb you're talking about. So that's really handy. Yeah, it was just like a really sweet thing to do to a, you know an old codger like myself. So I uh, hid behind this thing, and then I witnessed this really cool conversation, which turned out to be what would you call it, the um, initial conflict or whatever it is to kick off the start of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the story got rolling after that, and I, it just felt good. The writing in Ballyhoo is not so great. It, I think it could have benefited a little bit from, um, I don't know what to call it, a little bit, like if they would have said it in the dirty 30s or something, it might have been a lot more fun. Mm. But um, so far, it's just, just a fun, interesting world. I mean, like who who thought of putting a murder-slash-disappearance mystery in the middle of a circus and, um, you know, casting you as this person who's going to be investigating things. Hmm. Um, so it's really good at throwing you into the action very early on. Like, that was in the first five minutes of the game. Well, that's kind of um, neat. Yeah, and I didn't die. I haven't been able to die yet, which is really great. I, <laughs> the first thing I did was, like, walk over to Tiger Cage, open Tiger Cage, mm-hmm. <laughs> and course. it's like, the door, the door is locked. And I'm like, ah. Mm-hmm. So... You know, the second thing I did was, like, climb up rope, and it's like, in front of you is the tight rope. It's 50 feet or 200 feet above ground or something insane. And I was just like, walk across tight rope. And it's like, are you absolutely insane? No. Because <laughs> oh. usually it lets so, you be absolutely insane. That's too bad. Have you tried anything like provoke bearded lady? Uh, haven't met the bearded lady yet, but I'm assuming it's going to happen. I've so far met it, ran into two circus midgets, so it's... It's going to happen. Uh, okay. Or like tug, tug at bearded lady's beard or something. Yeah, good. Um, try to be as offensive as possible. <laughs> that's like the first thing I always try to do is like either die or, you know, kill somebody in an adventure game. So I know. Um, that's kind of our responsibility to be irresponsible with the, the goodwill of our, of our protagonist. Yeah, and I wish I could say like, I wish I could say that this is something that, you know, grew with, you know, adult age that I stopped doing it. But I've actually just gotten kind of worse. Good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, so I've been playing Ballyhoo, and the other Infocom title, which I'm way more excited about um, in some ways, is an Amy Briggs game called Plundered Hearts. Have I brought that up before? Uh, I don't think so. I want to rave about this game. I, I, I think this might be the best Infocom title I've ever played. Not that I've played that all that many, <laughs> um, but Plundered Hearts is what I consider to be literary masterpiece as far as text adventures go. Wow. Um, it, is, it is incredibly well written. Um, Amy Briggs is 
I think she, I was reading her, reading her um, bio in this Infocom Adventure Collection, and she was basically uh, a graduate of a, an English Lit degree, and she somehow started working at Infocom and published, you wouldn't believe, like, talk about risks. I mean, we talk about how risky uh, the indie adventure scene is uh, with, you know, titles that wouldn't normally be published, like, um, uh, in, you know, in, in the mainstream games, like, you know, like we mentioned, Francisco's A Golden Wake. Mm-hmm. Um, this game is a, a high-seas romance set in the 1700s starring a female protagonist. Um huh. I mean, it's like something you pull I, off of the the, the discount uh, shelf at Walmart. Sounds like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I I was just blown away. The, the The first screen is basically you know you've been abducted by this this evil guy while you're on in search of your father who's gone missing, um, and the abduction. Um, all of a sudden, in the middle of this abduction, this this brazen you know a bare chested. Um, a pirate shows up and says, my lady, I'm here to take you away, kind of thing. Um, and I don't know how to describe it. It is so well written in period, historical period style um, that, you know, it's not everyone like ye old kind of stuff. It's more that she nailed, you can tell she read a lot of romance books to nail the exact tone of that high seas, adventurous pirate kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I don't know. It just has so much going for it. The first thing is, she, you know, this guy named Captain Falcon comes in. He says, I will rescue you from this evil man who's captured you. And you kind of, so, and then he bows to you in this very kind of, um, you know, ostentatious manner. And the best part was, if you don't say anything to him, he just continues on blathering about how you're going to be saved and just stay in the cabin for your own <laughs> safety. And the best part was, I bowed back to him. And just like, kind of like bowing, like, thank you, my Lord, kind of thing. And he smiles and he's like impressed by how ladylike I was in my, you know, <laughs> like courtly appearance. And I was just like, oh, God, the fact that she thought that you might want to bow back to him just blew me away. Well, that's so, neat. What he like says a little bit more every turn that uh, exactly. transpires. Yeah, exactly. And he just kind of goes, he kind of waits for you to respond. And sometimes if you don't say anything interesting, he just says, he kind of waves away your, your, your middling remark and continues with his rant. Uh, <laughs> but mm. uh, the best part of the game was, um, uh, I think Ben and Francisco mentioned this in one of the episodes of the BCT, uh, Pod, Blue Cup Tools podcast. Um, or actually, you know what? It was not Ben. It was, sorry, it was... Um, uh, our good friend uh, who writes for PC Gamer and has his own uh, uh, Patreon, Richard Cobbett. Ah. Um, Richard Cobbett mentioned, he's like, I wish that games just sometimes let you throw the goddamn brick through the window instead of saying, oh, I shouldn't break the window, or, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, by the way, the Richard Cobbett episode on Blue Cup Tools is just absolutely hilarious. But... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it has this moment where Falcon leaves the... I'm going to spoil... This is a minor spoiler. It's, it's just a part of the game. Falcon leaves your room, and you can wait around for Falcon to come back, or you can go out exploring. And I decided to go out exploring, and at the start of the game, they kind of limit your path to going underneath into the hull of the ship, that kind of thing. And I went up, and there's like there's a coffer standing here, or there's a coffer sitting underneath the bed. So I grabbed the coffer. I'm like, fuck it. Throw coffers through window. And I was just like... The window smashes open, and you see a rope dangling from the window. I'm like, no way. Whoa. Yeah. Huh. 
So I, I, I'm like, climb out the window. And it's like the rope swings in front of your nose. You think you can grab it. So I grab onto the rope and I start climbing up. And then as soon as you start trying to climb, it's like your dress is getting in the way. And I, <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. So, I, I, of course, I drowned like in the first two minutes of the game because my dress was too heavy for me trying mm. to climb up this like massive rope. So I defrocked myself. Mm-hmm. And I ran out in my breeches, and of course you're able to climb the rope. And then as soon as I get to the top, some pirate punch you. It's like there's a woman on the deck, you know, kind of thing. And it's actually pretty nasty. It says something like, "While Falcon was uh, charming and uh, was charming and gentle with you, his shipmates less so. You are dead." Uh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's a pretty dark, pretty dark line to die by. So I, yeah. Long story short, I. I I snuck into Falcon's closet, stole some of his clothes, and I dressed up as a man. And then you can wander around the ship as a man. Oh, um, that's a that's very clever. I, it is, and it was Good just planning. like it's it's so well integrated with its historical kind of style, mm-hmm. um, or, or and with the whole idea of you know romantic voyage. So it's the basic the theme of the game is you basically find out that Falcon's going to be murdered, or and he needs to be saved. So you become kind of the heroine of it, trying to save him. Um, oh, what a nice great, twist that is! That's refreshing. Yeah. It's a perfect reversal of the classic romantic uh, uh, novelistic genre. So, yeah, I just like top marks to it. Absolutely top marks. That's really nice. I especially like to hear all these like incremental ways that you can either succeed or fail or how it uh, teaches you uh, through failure, at least in an encouraging fashion, how the, you're supposed to solve the puzzle. And I really, yeah. I really like uh, the idea of like designing an adventure game room and sort of having this matrix of all of the objects and how they might interact with each other and all the possibilities of of um, encouraging and uh, satisfying uh, error messages yeah. or opportunities for the player based on those yeah, combinations. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think she she paid a lot of attention to um, saying um, giving you a massive matrix of possibilities and then saying, okay, a woman in the 1700s would only do this. For instance, I'd said, take off breeches, and then she just kind of, you get like this kind of snarky little thing and say, that would be most unladylike of you, um, kind of thing. So she always really focused on paying attention to nailing that genre and giving the player the opportunity to try doing certain things, but also giving your protagonist kind of enough, I don't know what to call it, um, identity that they'll, re- they'll just outright refuse to do certain things that are outside of their moral code. Yeah, it's um, one thing to have an error message, and it's another to refuse to do something because your character is mindful and has pride or something like that. That's yeah. at least a, an excuse for why they wouldn't. Exactly, and it's it's just like well done because there's no reason that she couldn't take off her clothes, but just you know this it's it's a it's a perfect way of kind of sub, yeah subverting error messages so they're not mm. I can't do that no way kind of thing. Yeah, um, right. I think it's just char- it's totally charming game. I think I want to say it might be the text, best text adventure game I've ever played my whole life. Wow! Um, yeah, I consider that uh, even higher praise than than Planetfall in some ways. Hmm. Oh, glad you uh, had the opportunity to play something so fulfilling and refreshing. Yeah, and um, and I'm actually most excited because to celebrate San Francisco's and Wajudai's big win this week, uh, I consider that a big win. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to be playing one of Brian Moriarty's Infocom games this week. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, anyone I, in particular? Yes, I am going to be playing, um, uh, what's it called, uh, Trinity. Have you heard of Trinity? No. Trinity, um, I'll talk about this next week, but just a quick 
to whet people's appetites, um, basically you end up in, as a, you're a tourist in London, and World War III breaks out and vaporizes basically the whole city, the whole planet. Um, and you're in this post-apocalyptic kind of game with really strange um, encounters, etc. And this is just based on the manual I'm reading. Um, and I'm really excited about it. Um, you know, uh, our good friends, Ben and Francisco, are working on Shardlight, and I thought, well, you know, what better way to honor their um, upcoming game than to play not only uh, something set in the post- post-apocalyptic era, but also something by Brian Moriarty. Mm-hmm. So oh, I'm well. really excited about it. Yeah, look forward to uh, you telling us uh, how you liked it next week. Yeah. Do you, um, uh, having played a bunch of these uh, text adventures now, um, are you having trouble getting through them? Are you having trouble finishing them or finding the motivation to continue with that medium? Oh, you know what's really funny? Um, I'm actually finding the opposite, which is really strange. Um, I was really worried about that, yeah, that I would get in, you know, um, five minutes into it and just say, ah, you know, kind of thought this. Um, what I'm really surprised by is that I'm far more likely right now to play my way through and dig my way through the story in a text adventure game than I am a graphical adventure game. Hmm. Um, it's it's been really the opposite. I've been oh, and yet I, I've been I have been playing one other game too, which I'll mention in, in a bit. But just if I had to compare my play experiences with Ballyhoo and Plundered Hearts versus something like Quest for Glory One, hmm. um, I am finding really struggling to find the interest to play Quest for Glory One versus getting really excited about, yeah, playing a little bit of Trinity or Ballyhoo or one of the other games. Because, really? yeah, I find that even though the story, like the idea of the plot um, in these games is less, it's less plot-driven than something like uh, the average adventure game, what I'm finding is there are way more, like way more opportunities to play them according to your own style. Um and it's less dependent on linear puzzle logic. Um, I think we discussed that at some point, but, you know, the whole um, Babelfish puzzle or Babelfish, sorry, Babelfish puzzle. Right. Um, you know, I, I find graphical adventure games in general really rely on linearity and don't offer a lot of different opportunities for, um, you know, uh, doing the puzzle in different ways because graphics are very, very expensive to produce. And yeah, that's right. Well, and is this this is something we discussed last time as well. Is this kind of a matter of how in text you can you know you can just kind of conjure up some scenario or some action just yeah. by writing it, and you don't have to worry about what it looks like or whether it's one of the few verbs that are permitted. Is, does that make it that much more free form yeah. and perhaps logical? Exactly. And, yeah. um, and I'm just blown away that you know they in especially in a game I played. I mentioned. Um, the diving game that I was playing, uh, shoot, what's the name of it now? Um, Cutthroat. Oh, you mean, right. You mentioned that yeah. last week, right? Cutthroat had this, I, I think I mentioned, it had this amazing scene where, I, you know, I was towing my hose behind me and I forgot that I had a hose attached to my diving bell suit. And at some point the hose got snagged and I drowned underneath, uh, you know, 10,000 leagues under the sea. And it was just like, that's such a little thing, but it gives perfect immersion to this game where oh shit I do have a hose and I better be thinking about where my hose is behind my body at some point mm-hmm. and little things like that you know they're tiny little one line things of text you know of course it sucks in Infocom games that you die on every single page but you know I just consider those to be error messages basically um, and mm-hmm. 
the actual story progression is much more exciting because I really do feel that they they make me feel like I'm, a, I'm the person creating the story here. I'm not here along for the ride to see how the story unfolds. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like a, that's the, the coup de grace to aim for in the graphical adventure games is to make the player feel like they're the one unpacking a story and not following along the story as the designer intended. It's a tough thing to do. And I think especially the more of a genre that you have played, the more familiar you are with the, the ideals and standards and tropes of a genre, the, I guess the harder it is for you to break outside of that box. Like yeah, I, uh, totally, totally. The, the longest game that I ever made was a text adventure game. And I have played very few text adventures, and I don't think I've ever finished any of them. And that's right. kind of what drew me to the genre of text adventures, because I was kind of coming at it with this absolutely clean slate and no predispositions about what it ought to be. And so like yeah. the game that I had made in this genre was the sort of game where I wanted everyone to be able to finish it. I kind of took my time to tell a story and made some okay. objects and some things that were optional, things that you could look at and get subsequent descriptions about. But uh, gotcha. I, and so I, when I think of an adventure game, though, it's the kind of a thing that tries to trick you into not finishing. It tries to stump you, and it might not necessarily be something that every player is going to finish. Yeah, so, and, and, and I think that's really true. I think, like, and, I, and I'm being a little bit, what's the word? Um, I'm being a little bit glib. There are definitely spots throughout these Infocom games where you can see that they intentionally tried to stump you, are intentionally forcing your hand to go according to a very pre-built linear path. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, the idea was experiment with everything because everything's going to give you some valuable feedback versus the average adventure game, which I don't want to point any fingers because I... I am number one, 100% on board with the idea that they're almost fucking impossible to finish making. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I find that in general, and especially in graphical adventure games, the number one thing you get back is generic error message um, saying, you can't touch that, you can't, uh, no, I don't want to look at that, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that's not really feedback. That doesn't give you, you know, like um, Ben and Francisco have said several times on their podcast, um, that doesn't give, that's not world building. Uh, it's world building when you say, you know, I don't know, you, you step backwards and step on your hose and you drown. I'm like, okay, maybe I shouldn't step backwards in a scuba diving suit. Bad idea. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> so I, those kinds of, those kinds of opportunities, probably much easier to do in a text adventure game, but I love seeing them. Mm-hmm. I think I have in, I, I can, uh, hear like every little tiny cadence of uh, Sam in Sam and Mac saying, I can't use these things together because I heard that <laughs> error message so many together. times. Yeah. Oh, so it, oh, it's an example like... of just an unhelpful, an unhelpful oh, error God. message. And in those graphic adventure games, you are laden down with so many objects into your inventory. And I know that it must be a whole lot of work to come up yeah. with uh, combinations of two items and to say anything meaningful about it. But you don't even have to say something meaningful. Say something funny or at least something unique. But to give this generic error message, uh, you, you can do better as a as a game designer, I think, as a writer. Yeah, and it, it's, it's, it's tough because it's also dependent on the kind of tools we're using. AGS, for instance, has this built-in function to hand, it's called unhandled error messages. And mm. they're basically what happens when you combine two inventory items or you use an inventory item on a hotspot um, that we didn't expect. And right, and that's where you say the generic thing, right? Exactly, and and so the engine actively creates that opportunity for for designers, and I think designers basically just say, well, let's just have it cycle through three generic error messages, um, and 
really the I have a complete empathy and sympathy for everyone who gets stuck in that position is, well, if the tool is there, we might as well use it and let's just, let, let's just cycle through a few random error messages. But yeah, it's, it's, I, I think that's, you, we're hitting like a, a practical limitation on the developer's time and it, it just sucks to have to deal with. I, I totally get it. That's true enough. I mean, like in an adventure game, the earlier you pick something up, the more exponential uh, exponentially more uh, scenarios there are to click on uh, to click something in the environment with that item. Yeah. So that it's unreasonable and to expect that everywhere. Exactly. So my number one kind of suggestion is don't do inventory puzzles. They suck. Item combinations mm-hmm. suck. They're terrible. This is uh, true. <laughs> okay, sorry. So last game I'm playing um, <laughs> is Quest for Glory 1 VGA. Have you ever played that? Oh, yes, I've played both both the EGA and VGA versions, and I think I might even like them equally. Uh, how, how are you liking it so far? Oh, I love Quest for Glory 1. I, I think uh, people crapped on the... I think we might even have talked about Quest for Glory 1 at some point. Um, people crapped on it because they said, oh, you know, it's uh, the VGA remake puts everything into um, tree-like lists of dialogue. Um, mm-hmm. The original was so much better because you could experiment in the world, and I'm like, I, I, I get it, I agree, but there's something really... Uh, I don't know. There's something really cute and fairy tale like about Quest for Glory One VGA. Um, mm-hmm. It just makes you feel like you're in a little place surrounded by mountains, and it feels very. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. The atmosphere is just right for me. Oh, I totally know what you mean. I think it's a very inviting kind of an environment, and especially because, unlike at least unlike uh, number four, I don't think there's any world timer, so you can really That's right. take your time and build yourself up and. Stop to smell the roses. I hate when there's a world timer because I feel like if I'm doing anything for fun, then I'm doing it wrong. Exactly. And and I, I'm i actually running into a bit of a problem with it. Um, this is why I said I'm losing my interest in it. It's a surprisingly grindy game if you play as a wizard. Um, have you ever played through as a wizard? Um, I don't think I have. I think I've only done the other two classes, uh, the Thief and the Warrior. Yeah, and that's almost, I, I almost always go for a uh, thief because I always enjoy breaking into the houses at night. They're pretty fun. Oh, that's um, great. I know. Oh, yeah. so is it uh, the fact that you have to quaff so many potions? You have to, like, the potions are fucking expensive. They're like 50 gold per potion, or 40, sorry, 40 silvers to 50 silvers per potion. Mm-hmm. Um, you cannot quaff a potion during combat. Um, right. So basically, you have to go in full tilt into combat. And the worst part is, the thief and the warrior are so good um, in melee combat. The wizards basically, unless you have like massive amounts of mana, you cannot possibly win a battle. Um, mm. So I'm I'm screwed. I'm actually I fulfilled all of the quests in the game, um, and I'm ready to take on. I'm done to spoil this for anybody because I think everyone should play Quest for Glory One. I think it's a great game. Oh, yeah. um, I'm ready to take on the last quest in the game, which is to go find the source of the brigands. Um, and I can't beat them. I've I've gotten past the brigands. I've gotten to basically there's a kind of uh, a mini boss you meet, and there's absolutely no way I can get past that because my character needs to basically level up his skills for the next four or five hours. Um, mm. And it it blows. It's just not fun. So basically, I'll just spend the next four or five hours out in the forest killing goblins and brigands. That's a real shame. I found. I did play the I did play the magic user for a while. I remember now. Okay. I definitely didn't finish it, but what I seem to remember was that except for that mage's maze uh, game yep. that you get to play once you know a bunch of the spells, I thought that the magic user was the least interesting of all the characters because 
pretty much any of the any of the uh, puzzles that you come across, they are solved by you having the appropriate spell for that right. situation. Whereas the others, you have to either like climb a tree or knock something out of something else by throwing a rock, or you kind of have to engineer a solution for yourself. Exactly. It's not quite so cut and dry. So I found that a lot more interesting. The thief, I think, is my favorite of the oh, classes. Oh yeah, the thief, although... the thief. Thief has the grapple hook, which is so much fun. Yes, that's right. That's right. And you have to practice the climbing, and you, you have to do things through conversation. I, I really like that class. Uh, th- yeah, for me most too. Of I think I think the game series. is basically built around the thief, and then they kind of uh, shoehorned in the other two classes to make the game, you know, extend playtime. Could but, be. Yeah, the wizard I was surprisingly disappointed with, but I'm still glad I'm playing through as a wizard. You know, it's opening up. Let's say it's opening up parts of the game that I didn't really know existed. Um, you know, casting your trigger spell in certain spots does certain things, which is a nice touch. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's right. That's what, I, that's what I've been playing. What have you been playing lately? Oh, good stuff. Me, um, I, I've i been playing some stuff that I already mentioned last week, so I'll only give it a, a cursory mention. Um, okay. I've been putting uh, like half an hour or so, maybe less, each day into Animal Crossing, which I mentioned oh, last man. week. Did you say that you hadn't played that one? Oh, I love it. Oh, no, Animal you have. Crossing. You I have. have. Francisco, I, Francisco hasn't played it. I love Animal Crossing and death. That's right. It's just so charming and so relaxing. And so I had a pleasant surprise. So as I mentioned, I've been playing it on this emulator, the Dolphin emulator, which yeah. can emulate both GameCube and Wii games. And so I'm playing the uh, Wii version, which is one of the few Wii games that you can play that don't rely on any motion controls. It's just a cursor right. on the screen, essentially, yeah, it's, and maybe it's Animal Crossing buttons. City Folk or something. Uh, Wild World is the. Oh, Wild World. One. Sorry. Right. That's right, which unfortunately I can't do any very much of the wild world because the emulator doesn't have anything online and a lot of that stuff is dependent on uh, having an online connection. That's okay, right. it's a it's a more game than I'll ever be able to finish in a lifetime anyway, so <laughs> that'll suffice. So I uh, started the uh, town that I'm playing now probably two or two and a half years ago or so, quite some time ago, and oh, I just wow. kept my save game, and I started, I played it for like a month or something, and then I stopped, and then I picked it up again nine months later and I stopped and then I think I left it for another year or a year and a half and I stopped um, so luckily I did what every every time traveler dreams of which I had forgotten about which is I put a bunch of money in the bank before oh. <laughs> going away for quite some time and I uh, just looked for the heck of it into my bank account and I had the, the currency is bells and right. so I had like 190,000 bells which is not a heck of a lot of money but it's yeah. plenty and did it, did it um, increase with interest or something? Yeah, there is like compound interest, which you collect every month. So just oh, a little bit. Oh, no way! So coming back to a town for the first time in a really long time, your uh, your village is just full of weeds, and every time yeah. you talk to someone, they say, oh, I thought you got in an accident or something. Why were you neglecting our friendship? And <laughs> some people left, and some new people came, and they never met you before. It's this, like, vast alien wasteland that you barely recognize. But uh, thankfully, the warmest welcome I got was in my bank account, having this nice uh, chunk of change in there. So I compared my... Uh, uh, I compared my bank balance with the remainder of my loan for my little house, and uh, I had more than enough money to pay off my loan, which I don't think I've ever wow. done in a, in a <laughs> in a in one of these games. So that was cool. So I just paid it off yesterday, and was wondering whether I had an upgrade to my house waiting for me the next day. And I don't seem to have had an upgrade, so I wow, think I so might you... actually be free and clear. Holy shit! So you topped out your house, like you cannot get another story added to it or something? Seems to be. I thought that I wow. remember there being like 
houses with two stories. And mine, That's what I, I mean, too. like two stories that you could decorate and a third that you just sleep in. Right. So I have a a big main level and I don't have a second story except for my bed. So maybe uh-huh. uh, I have to wait another day or something. Yeah, maybe Tom Knuckles show up and with with another random. Oh, hey, look, you've somehow found another story added to your house. That's right. I owed him like three hundred and something thousand bells for this upgrade, so I hope I don't owe him like a million for some subsequent oh, one. Fucking raccoon, man! I know he's a, he's kind of a dick, isn't he? Very presumptuous. <laughs> it's a good racket oh. he's got going on, I guess. And I've been uh, begging my wife to play this because when we had it on uh, on uh, Nintendo DS, she played it for at least three or four weeks or so, which is a long okay. time for her to play a game of my recommendation. So that was fun. She really liked it a lot, but. I guess rightfully so. She felt like she kind of seen everything worth seeing amongst that time. Because okay. talk about grindy games. That's a game where you grind and grind. Oh, and it's God, really, yeah. It's like Sims, I guess, in that it's uh, you, you grind for money and you want to acquire possessions, and it gives you certain milestones. Like there's this Happy Room Academy, as it's called, which evaluates yeah. your house based on how you've decorated it that month, <laughs> and they have a theme, and so you have to buy the requisite items that uh, bring you in line with that theme. And I can't be bothered to do that kind of stuff. I sort of decorate my house with whatever looks good, and I leave it that way forever, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> but um, she won't play it with me, which is too bad, because it's Aww. a lot more fun when you have two people and you can write obscene messages to each other. You post them publicly in the town, and then the other person maybe comes across it and writes something horrible back to you. This game's about being horrible to your neighbors, of course. So um, And also that you get to share fruit. Yes. Oh, that's well, that is if you each... That is something that is reliant upon online. One thing that's, oh, uh, it is. Okay, that's too bad. Yeah, which I wouldn't be able to do. If I were to play it with her, it would be us both in the same town. I was thinking we could put the save game in a network share and then play it one at a time so that we're right. both updating the same save game. Right. Oh, that okay, was that kind of sense. my dream. But she, she, even though I'm writing her obscene things, I'm writing, look, I wrote that you smell in public. She <laughs> is not being goaded into moving into my town where I've established this terrible reputation for her. I can't imagine why not. As far as I know, that's exactly how the court, uh, court potential partners. <laughs> it worked for me. <laughs> go, go them into moving in with you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You challenge them. So uh, tonight being uh, Saturday when we record this is once again the uh, night where I get to watch K.K. Slider perform. So I shall do that and add one of his song recordings to my jukebox inside my house. And that's uh, one of the biggest milestones that I really care about now is just hearing whatever he has to play that that week and sticking it in my jukebox so I can play it again later. Even though I have the soundtrack, when you uh, <laughs> you have this little tape recorder at home and it plays this kind of general MIDI simplified version of whatever song that he had been vocalizing. So I enjoy well, there's those like something really, There's something really like, I don't know how to explain it, but really special about going to see K.K. Slider once a week. It's like, I actually get like excited thinking about, I'm like, oh yeah, I get to go down to the cafe and he's going to be starting his like live gig in a few minutes. Exactly. Oh, I actually, well, last week, um, talking to one of my uh, villager neighbors, uh, she, I think she was, uh, she was a kitty cat or something like that. And she said, you know, you never invite me to your house. Why don't you invite me to your house? So I'm like, okay, fine. I'll, you can come over to my house. And she's like, what time? So I said, okay, you can come at 12 o'clock noon. And so I invited her. And then on my phone, I used my, my, uh, Google now, uh, voice reminder thing. I'm like, okay, Google, remind me to play the game <laughs> at 1157 AM. So oh that would be God. there for noon. And 
naturally I did something stupid. You know, I got on there a little bit early and I was doing something stupid and playing around with the emulator and I tried to do something in the hardware and then it, the game crashed on me and then I had Mr. Resetti give me his whole diatribe. And of course he finished uh, lambasting me at exactly 12.01 uh, p.m. Oh, God. So I go into my house and it's not there. And I wait for like three minutes and she's not there. She's like, oh, I went to your house at exactly noon and you weren't there. I guess you don't like me very much. So I pissed off the kitty cat. Oh, and then the the best part when you piss them off is like they play like this little musical theme that's like meow 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 meow, but they like <laughs> play a slightly different one if they're mad at you. <laughs> yeah, they do, don't they? And it has these cute little emotes where she has storm clouds over her head, and then she's yeah. like swearing to herself, muttering as she walks away from me. <laughs> so I really, I really ticked off that kitty cat. I feel kind of terrible about it. <laughs> yeah, for any for any of our, our DOS listeners who who just despise. Us talking about uh, console stuff. I honestly think that Animal Crossing is the closest possible thing to like a classic DOS game, and I can't explain why. But it reminds me a little bit of like Little Computer People or um, Ultima Seven, whose characters are all on NPC schedules. There's something <laughs> like just really perfectly real time about it. I just love to death. Oh, well, I'm going to capitalize on this golden opportunity then because uh, the other game that I've been playing this week is Ultima 7. Oh, my God, no way. <laughs> I'm playing it with the Exalt, uh, I guess you call it an emulator or the oh, source baby. port or something like that. I have played Ultima 7 many, many, many times. I've never gotten anywhere at all. I played it when it was brand new, and it's like yeah. all Origin games, it completely ate my computer for breakfast. Uh, they had the they had such an they were like the the Crytek of the nineties, oh, totally. weren't they? Where yeah. they, their games would just demolish your computer. You never owned a computer good enough to play their games. Well, I was um, always impressed by like they always had their own memory manager um, for for yeah. the, the Origin games, and I there was like yeah, you're absolutely right. The first memory manager game I saw was um, uh, it wasn't Ultima Seven. It was uh, Wing Commander. Um, the Wing Commander mm -hmm. had its own like extended memory manager. Yeah. Um, and then Ultima 7, just like it's got this thing called Voodoo. Um, it's the Voodoo memory management system. And, uh, oh, my God, it needs like 639K free. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. It's like this insatiable insatiable drunkard who <laughs> just <laughs> consumes your your conventional RAM. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It, it was, was really hard to get rid of. That was like a... In your living room. <laughs> it was one of those games where you almost certainly needed some kind of a customized boot uh, boot disk or multi config to oh, make actually, sure that you could actually run the thing. It's funny in the manual they actually point you to the installer which will create a boot disk that basically just contains command.com on it. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Pretty crazy. So, your computer was good for nothing but playing that game until you rebooted it. Oh, yeah, it, it was like totally. It's all, Ultima 7 was its operating system and <laughs> Mhm. Mm Exactly. So it's really cool playing it with this Exalt uh, uh, source port, I'm going to call it, I guess, for lack of yeah. any better term, because uh, it modernizes it. It makes it uh, easily uh, executable on a modern PC, and it doesn't rely on DOSBox. It works very well with DOSBox, and I'm playing it with the version that I purchased from uh, GOG, which awesome. uh, is totally runnable in DOSBox. It works very well. But the Exalt emulator lets you run it in widescreen and also in your native resolution. And That's it's correct. configurable in terms of how much you zoom it in, but you can have it so that it doesn't zoom in whatsoever and it doesn't downscale whatsoever. And yes. it's it's like looking at a mini map of like some other 
<laughs> game. You can see so far all around you, and your character is so teensy weensy when you zoom it out all the way. And run like when I run it at nineteen twenty by ten eighty. Oh my god, that's creepy! I never even thought of trying that. Oh, it's crazy! It's 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 really nuts. I wish there was some easy way for me to toggle between whether it's upscaled or not, because I would use it. <laughs> As a mini-map, it would be... It's like a super highly detailed mini-map with every single detail present, which is very, very handy. And it's cool to think of all the stuff that it's emulating and simulating like while you have it zoomed out that much, because this is a game... The whole world's running, yeah. Yeah, it has a crazy amount of detail, and as you mentioned, the NPCs have their own schedules. Like, a person will go to work and then go to eat and then go to bed and then walk around and spend time in the park or something, and you can follow them around for a day if you want to to watch their schedule. They'll, yeah, and, they'll react to say, oh, I can't sell that to you now because I'm off duty. or It's very, very cool stuff. Yeah, it's kind of unbelievable. And I, I, my favorite was watching the baker um, in downtown Britain. How far did you manage to get so far? I'm not at Britannia. Britain? Britannia? I'm not there yet. I, uh, I, I got as much information as I could in Trinzic, which is the very okay. first town that you're locked into until you get the password to leave. Yep. And... I took a little walk around. I'm now at... I can't remember the name of it. There's, I'm at, I found two Pog. little townships. Pog, that's right. I found Pog, yeah. and I found... I went through some Moongate, which took me to some secluded oh. island as well. Oh, cool. The, um, the, oh, do, do you happen to have the map? Oh, yeah, I guess you don't have the map that came with the game. Um, it, uh, the GOG version comes with all these PDFs, including Oh, okay, a map. good. Yeah, because then you can at least figure out which island you're on. Some of the... Um, Moongate, uh, the Moongates, yeah, they're, a, a, they're like a brilliant idea because they allow you to either play the game in a very, very linear fashion or kind of warp over to places where you shouldn't technically have access to yet. Mm. But, yeah, it's just like if, you know, I hope you're listening, Ben. I'm not sure if you've played Ultima 7 yet, um, but I think it is like the, the highest possible pinnacle to hit in an RPG, which is open-world exploration that nonetheless tells a perfectly uh, understandable story. Well, that's nice to hear. And it's just so massive and insurmountable in scope, or at least it has been until this point. I'm having more success now, I think thanks in part to this uh, source port. But just figuring out what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. I know that having played Ultima Underworld anyway, which is really the only Ultima game that I ever put much time into, and it's like only barely an Ultima game, that I guess I'm supposed to be this virtuous person. Right. So every other time I played Ultima 7, I just stole everything from everybody, and <laughs> if they yelled at me, then I put it back, and I waited for them to walk out of the door, out of the room, and then I closed the door, and I stole it anyway. So I tried not doing that for a while, and I got uh, uh, voraciously destroyed by packs of wolves and, like, the easiest right. possible enemies. And so I'm kind of wussing out a little bit where I'm, I'm stealing from them now, and then with this source port I can make it so that enemies do a little bit less damage to me. So I want to make it to, into something that I'm going to actually play and not have to work too hard just to keep myself alive and to keep the lights on, per se. Um, what else was <laughs> stealing, there that Stealing for subsistence, I believe, is a morally morally correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think so. I hope the, so. Um, which NPC followers do you have so far? Right now, I have the I have Iolo, who yep. is the old man, and I have the kid whose father is murdered. Yes, and fantastic. On, Mark. Yes, and and, <laughs> and um, 
I I saw something funny on Twitter, which uh, Richard Goodness is uh, the name of the guy I've been following on Twitter, who's a huge RPG fan and who is an incredible whiz at uh, duplicating uh, maps on grid paper of RPGs. He has these oh, wow. absolutely gorgeous, enormous multi like multi paper page recreations of maps that he does for himself while he plays these games. I'm so wow. impressed with that talent. Um, he started playing it recently too. I think it was him tweeting about it that got me wanting to play it again. And so he posted a screenshot which I laughed at so hard because he found it funny as well. The fact that you can open up Spark's uh, information panel and his paper doll, which is like the uh, representation of right. his body. He starts out with no gear. And so all you can see is like, you know, this this barely clothed child, except I think all of your male players have the same body and just a different head because yeah. he's like all buffed and muscular he's and rippled body and stuff. For a yeah, he's like a, he's like a 10, 9-year-old kid or something with a slingshot. <laughs> <laughs> but he's all like lumpy Hans and Franz looking, so that's a a bit of an unpleasant surprise. I I made it a priority to clothe him in, in oh, anything. Yeah. I, <laughs> that uh... was very disturbing. I, I, I love Ultima 7. I, I, I've played that game over a dozen times. Um, I've probably only finished it three or four times, though. It's surprisingly long. Um, but the um, cool thing is Exalt, um, this, there is one uh, several big advantages to running Exalt over the original DOS version. Um, one is that you get the heads of your characters at the bottom of the screen, um, like AD and D style, so you can actually have quick access to seeing your current health, current mana levels. Oh, that's um, a must. I just yeah, I figured that out and I added that right away. Yeah, it's huge. Um, if you can keep track of that, it's it's fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing it adds is, which is, sounds like a small thing, but if you've ever played Ultima Seven in DOS, you'll you'll totally sympathize with me here. Um, it gives you a key ring, um, so you don't oh. have to try every single one of your fucking keys on a lock to see if it works. I noticed uh, an add-on for that on the Exalt download page, but I thought yeah. I would try it without it at first. But I think now that you say that, I it was similar in Ultima Underworld where you had a key yeah. ring, but that just contained the individual keys that you had to try one by one. So I think that I'm going to do that. I like when it stacks multiple similar items into a single usable thing. I'm going to go get that add-on. Oh, yeah. It's a total usability issue. I remember I had like separate bags for the colors of keys. I had At some point in the game, I think I had over 50 keys. And trying every single key on a lock is just horrifying. Oh, and the inventory in that in that game is so harsh. You just have to... <laughs> you basically have to, like, rifle through this enormous man purse that has absolutely... Yeah. It, it's, it has no organization whatsoever. Basically, wherever you stick something is where it's going to stay. So you have these piles and piles of crapola. It's literally like trying to find your keys in this overstuffed purse. Yeah, it's basically watching my girlfriend digging for her debit card in, at the... <laughs> Superstore checkout. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> and that was like that would be for ten years until Diablo came out, which I hope we get to talk about today because uh, Diablo was the, one of the first games I saw that had an actual grid-based inventory layout, which was a fucking godsend. That's right. Well, should we take this opportunity then? Is it, I think we've gone on long enough. Shall we yeah. uh, continue our discussion of multiplayer games? Diablo Absolutely. is on my list. Yeah, let's I've start. Got a, let's got a start with that one. About. Oh, let's start with Diablo, shall we, now that we mentioned it? Oh, please, yeah. Do you want to start that one off? I fucking love that okay, game. Okay, sure. So this is... I, I really love this game. I played it like crazy. Um, I was the archer character. There were three different players. There was a warrior, a mage, and an archer. And I tried the mage, and I didn't like it very much because you had to drink all these stupid mana potions, and I don't like having to manage too many consumables. Yes. Because um, you had limited, uh, limited uh, hot 
buttons or whatever on your screen where you can right. map uh, something to a, a key. Um, so I chose the Archer. This was a game. Uh, this is a game where you could play it single player, but I had so much more fun in multiplayer. I tried it in single player. As I recall, I think I got to the very last guy. I got to Diablo in the single wow. player, and it took a I've heck of a long time. Myself. It was really hard. I could not beat the asshole. He was yeah. very, very hard. I'm sure that I specced my character in a stupid way and spent points where I shouldn't have. As we mentioned, if not last time, then on a previous episode, that this was a game that you cannot respect your points once you spend them. That's how they are. That's and right. the points that you spend, they're like your... your I, I can't remember them all. Your strength, your magic, your agility, and yeah. your health, something like that. They're all really integral to the identity and the utility of your character. And if you make too many oh, mistakes, totally. then that's your character is just toast. Difference in that game. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, it was the backbone of, of what your character does and how able they are to... Uh, surmount any challenges. So if you screw it up, then there's just no way to fix it whatsoever. You would kill your character that you've been playing for dozens of hours and make a new one. So I obviously screwed something up because I couldn't get past uh, Diablo. But then I tried to play the game online, and it was so, so, so much fun. It was, of course, amazing as always in those early days to see other players running around. I'll back it up, I guess, to say that it used something called the Battle... Battle.net, Battle.net, client, so you would connect to your internet provider, and uh, I'm realizing now that we're kind of screwing with the chronology, but whatever, we'll talk about this in whatever order we we choose. (laughs) Um, You would connect to the internet, and then you would load up uh, Diablo and click the multiplayer button, which would take you to this Battle.net screen, and you could choose which of the lobbies you wanted to be in. I think it had lobbies per geography, or I don't really remember, but you would choose basically a chat room that you would want to sit in, and in the chat room, you could uh, talk with people to decide which game you wanted to join, or I think you could join games in progress as well. And then you could join a game with up to four people, or yeah, up to three other people, four people in total. Um, And there would usually be a little description saying, like, what level the people were and where they were and what the objective was of of, uh, joining that game. Um, So... It's essentially the same game, but there were some important differences. For example, uh, you could kill other players, and oh, you're supposed to only right. be able. To, yeah, you're only supposed to only fire. be able to kill them. That. That's right. And a cool thing that it did was, you know, you're only supposed to be able to kill people uh, when you're uh, in the combat yeah, areas in the dungeon. Uh, yeah. And this and this was a game that became absolutely rife with cheats and. Uh, <laughs> You had to beware of the uh, TKers or the town killers, the people who were cheating and could hit you while you're in town. But because you weren't a cheater, you couldn't even hit them back. But uh, uh, if you successfully kill a person... I didn't know that. So you could kill somebody in town using a cheat? Oh, man, the cheats were horrible in this game. For any oh, honest player, you just didn't stand a chance. And I never, yeah. ever cheat. Well, I can't say I never cheated because I'm about to talk about how I did it extensively. <laughs> but I never <laughs> used any cheats that weren't built right into the game. And this so game had some you, of the most awesome cheats. Were you a hardcore cheats. duper? I was a duper. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, why, don't you, why don't you talk about the procedure of duping an item? Uh, well, uh, this is just going based on memory, but... If I remember correctly, the best way to dupe, and you'll have to correct me on this because I'm, I'm, really, I'm like digging out of the past for this one, was I would intentionally find a friend of mine who had a terrible ping time to me. Like the latency would be pushing two to three to 400 milliseconds, which was always to my advantage with duping. So That's right. You'd find somebody with really high ping times. And I think the trick was 
I would drop an item, and then, oh, you have to correct me, and then you'd get them to pick it up as quickly as they could, or I would pick it back up as quickly as I could, and it would create two different versions of the same item on the same screen. Do you, you have to correct me on this, because I can't remember okay, how that... Okay, you're works. close. You're close. Here's what you would do. Um, you would... So, uh, you in this game, the money that you earned... Money actually took up slots in your bag, yes, and it was in stacks right. of 5,000 gold coins, as I remember. So like, right. the more money that you brought with you, the less room you actually had to pick up the gear and the potions and stuff that you would definitely need. So you would take some money, and you would break one of the stacks so that you had just one single gold coin. Then oh. you would drop the item that you wanted to duplicate. Right. You would click the item on the ground, but then you would very quickly uh, also click that one gold coin in your pocket. And so instead of picking up the gold coin, the item, the gold coin would turn into the item that was on the ground. That item would stay on the ground, and the gold coin that you had just uh, clicked moments uh, ago would turn into that item on the ground. That's so funny. I completely forgot to you you use a gold things. coin as like a medium for doing it. That's right, and it didn't have to be a gold coin. Anything you picked Anything, up the yeah. exact second that you were picking up the thing on the ground, the thing that was uh, that you had just picked up out of your inventory would turn into whatever it was that was on the ground. So <laughs> I remember too well that for a warrior... No, I, I don't think it even had to be for a warrior character. I think that any any character could equip yeah. it. I don't remember exactly, but the the gear, the, the, the uh, chest piece that you wanted was called the Godly Plate of the Whale. Oh my god, a... I re... I'll never forget that piece of armor. Oh my god. I know, the GPOW. And this is, uh, <laughs> people would advertise in their, you know, in their, when they wanted people to join their game, you know, trading for GPOW. So you you would join the game. <laughs> they had this highly sought after uh, piece of uh, gear that would give you tons of extra health, I think it was, and that's, that's what made it universally applicable to all the characters, something like that. You would join their game, and uh, sometimes they would charge you for the service in some way. Um, uh, otherwise, they would just allow you to uh, duplicate this item and be on your merry way. Yeah, it's too funny. Oh, <laughs> I, 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 what happened with me was, see, I never got to play with um, like anonymous people online because by that point, I had gotten very heavily into IRC, and uh, um, I used to hang out on this uh, IRC channel called uh, um, Hash Ultima on uh, EFNet, and. Mm -hmm. All the people there were really hardcore Diablo players, so they invited me to these three or four player Diablo games. And oh, that's awesome! Oh, it was just like incredible. Like I knew all these people. They, I was basically just a little punk kid. I think these guys are all in their twenties. I was fourteen or fifteen years old, so I was just you know the little kid that they invited along. You know, watch them die over and over, red shirt and ensign style. And um, but they would, yeah. I remember when when shit got serious, they would be like, you know, okay, today we're going to go for Diablo. So. You know, Chris, here's the, um, here, grab your godly plate of the whale. We're also going to dupe you a god or damarung. I can't remember the name of the, uh, <laughs> it was like this, this evil dagger or something like that that you could get. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and there was also fire based, uh, I want to say there was also a sword that was pretty badass that had cast some sort of fire field every time you, uh, uh, swipe oh, yeah. with it. And, um, Sounds familiar. Yeah, there was a few of them. I just remember they would really like, Basically, um, um, stock you up on equipment before you uh, before you went out there. Because the funny thing is, the game really was really weird balance of level based kind of um, like level. Your your character's level really drove and stats really drove the experience. But um, you did need pretty solid equipment to get through some of the um, nastier parts of the dungeon. 
Well, I think the more people you had logged on at the time, the higher the difficulty scaled for the oh. enemies, and it also dictated uh, how much or how valuable the loot that oh, they dropped. Really? So ideally, ideally, you want it to be on game on uh, servers with all four people because then the oh. enemies would be the hardest and they would drop the best stuff. Oh, that's funny. I didn't know that. I um, see when I my I only got to go three or four person exploring once in a while. What I actually did most often. There were these two people. I, I wish I could find them someday. Um, a, a guy named X Crown and his online girlfriend friend named Alandra, and uh, they would play like nonstop Diablo for months. And I would go adventuring with one of them. And Alandra always played this archer, and so I would, you know, I had this um, warrior that I would play. And we really struggled. I don't. I think maybe just once we finished Diablo as the pair of us. Um, but, oh man, I have such fond memories of, of spelunking because I don't know if we mentioned this or not, but Diablo, do you remember it randomly generated its dungeons? Oh yes. That was an unbelievably cool feature. Oh, it was like the first time I'd ever saw that in a game. And I was just always shocked. Um, do you happen to remember the first time you ever saw the butcher? Yes, I do. And the reason that I remember it is because it's actually an optional quest, where when I had played oh. it in my single-player version, you know, the Butcher was triggered by there being some, like, bloody guy outside the cathedral, right. which is the the world, the, the gateway to the first four floors or whatever. Yeah. He wasn't in my single-player game, and so I oh, was so too. shocked to find this guy outside the cathedral, because I'd never seen him before. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't know that. I, I played Diablo single-player so few times that... Um, I'd always played it online that we, I remember the first time I saw the butcher, I, I don't know if anybody else listening remembers this, but you know, you, you go down and I remember somebody yelling out, holy shit, I found the butcher. And there's like this door open and I, you just see bodies strewn everywhere. There's this room full of bo bodies and blood and my heart mm -hmm. just started pounding. And I'm like, you know, what is this thing? And then I came into the room and my three other friends were, um, you know, hacking away at this thing. They're like, quick, quick, attack him, shoot him. And I had my bow out. So I kind of tried to stand outside of the room and target him from out there and kind of thunk away with him. The bow makes like the most satisfying shooting sound. And, dunk, um, dunk, dunk. Yep. oh, yeah, exactly. And, oh, I just remember being scared shitless of the butcher. It was like the first time I'd actually, other than in Doom, actually was like physically, you know, afraid of a mini boss. No kidding, and I think it's the very first mini-boss you encounter, so it's that That's much right. more impactful, that it's so much bigger than you, and yeah. it has this huge meat cleaver, and yeah, there's like people on meat hooks wriggling yeah. around or something. It was very much like the Doom kind of a, a feel, this enemy. <laughs> this, this is a really yeah. dark, spooky game. It, and it is, and, and there was a terrifying like, boss. It was kind of funny, because it had so much, it had so much in, in, in common with Rogue, in terms of, do you remember the randomized fountains you'd find? The, you know, the fountains of... I can't remember. They were like fountains of mana, fountains of blood, and you could go. It's, mm -hmm. They weren't. They weren't. Were they fountains or shrines? I can't remember. They were fountains, I believe, and they made the most awesome sound when you clicked them. Oh yeah, exactly. Um, mm -hmm. You know what's funny about that game is it's like, in terms of audio, it's like a very, you know, it's a very sound-rich kind of landscape. Like when you totally. click, yeah, when you click on um, potions, it makes a like kind of the kind of bubbling sound, um, mm -hmm. and when you click on like. Gold, gold makes like this cha-ching kind of like, I don't know, perfect sounding gold dropping sound. And I don't know, it's like, it, it was like built to be addictive. 
They were the most satisfying, impactful, sharp sounds that I had heard since yeah. Epic Mega, Mega Games, who were <laughs> extremely good at that as well. They were the kind of sounds where it didn't matter how low bitrate they were, they still just sounded like absolutely in your face, like there was no ignoring them, and they were, as you say, exceptionally satisfying, like totally pushing your buttons, like the slot machine kind of a satisfying yeah. uh, sensation. And that was yeah. totally a slot machine kind of a game in so many ways. Oh, totally. I mean, like, the, the, they got rid of this in Diablo 2, um, but, you know, picking up your gold loot after um, killing skeletons and stuff was just like a great, just clicking the shit out of the area as fast as you can. Um, mm -hmm. was, was surprisingly satisfying, even though, you know, we technically found it annoying um, to have to grab your loot one at a time. It, it, there was no grab-all kind of... Or I think in Diablo 2, didn't you hold down the space bar and it would auto-grab for you or something? I don't remember. Maybe. I can't remember. I didn't play much Diablo 2, but... Diablo 1, oh man, um, it, it was unbelievable. And I think for some reason, didn't Diablo 1 also have like a modem multiplayer mode on top of TCPIP? Uh, maybe. I think it might maybe. have. I think because oh, one... One thing that it definitely had was you could, you could, you could play multiplayer on a LAN with one version of the game. What you oh, only had to buy right. one copy of the game and you could like copy that you had there was a there were two installers. There was the right. the single the, spawn the single installer. player installer and the multiplayer only installer. Which is such a generous thing for Blizzard to do. Good for them. It's amazing. I, I forgot you had it was considered a spawn disc if you gave them uh disc two instead of disc one or something. It was, That's right. Oh uh, or no it was a single disc game, but you could use use it as a spawn disc if you lent them your disc. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, it, it was like one key would allow you to play four games on a LAN or something like that, which is super, super cool. I never played it on a LAN. I'm sure it's... Well, you couldn't dupe your gear, so maybe I wouldn't have been interested playing on a, a LAN, but surely that was the way to play, because that's a game where every click counts. The funny thing is, you could actually play the spawn disc on Battle.net, um, but... Really? It, yeah, you, you, it only limited you to getting into, I want to say, the, up to level five with your character, and after that, you couldn't play the same character. That's a really good idea. So it was like a trial version. Yeah, basically. And uh, I remember doing that for a long, long time because I didn't have my own copy of Diablo in, for, I think, two or three months. And then eventually, um, and so I was using a spawn disk that somebody had lent me. And then eventually, so what we would do is we would just like play you know, Archer and Warrior, play, literally play up to level five every single time until you couldn't progress any further in the dungeon because you get your ass kicked. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, and it was just like an infinitely replayable game. And I think... Part of it was the randomized dungeons, which I really appreciate. But also, I don't know, I, I remember there were just days, because it was the people I was playing it with, I would have like these long chat conversations with my friends and just like literally clearing out a dungeon room. And then like, yeah, the equivalent of standing around having a smoke, <laughs> talking about, you know, for, for us it was like funny because it was like this private chat area where you could have like a, you know, a, a private conversation outside of the public arena of IRC for a little while. Yeah, that's right. The game was sort of just interesting enough that yeah. you could easily carry on conversations. It was really just something to do while you chatted, which is... I, I have a, an experience with that myself. Um, I didn't really have any regular people that I played with. I just did pickup right. groups with random internet strangers. And so one way that I kind of challenged myself was that I found the uh, French-Canadian 
servers, and I would oh, kind of really? practice my French while playing that, and they would practice their English, That's and it was amazing. all very amicable, and a really kind of, uh, it, it was a good way to spend our time, I suppose, just practicing, talking to each other, and trying to convey to each other what we wanted the others to do, and I don't know how much my Diablo vocabulary might have helped me <laughs> in the real world outside of the game, but it was uh, it was a little bit helpful. That's amazing. I hope uh, we I, I hope we hear from uh, Joe on this one. I don't know if Joe played Diablo or not. I suspect Joe's mm. not a huge RPGer, but um, you know I think Joe is actually very very um, um, bilingual. So I'm kind of curious. I never had the chance to play um, Diablo with fellow Canadians. That's really cool. It was cool. Well, I, as I think, if I'm not remembering incorrectly, there were like chat rooms or meeting rooms or whatever you call them, uh, lobbies for yeah. individual countries, and that was kind of how they separated to make sure that you spoke the same language as the other worldwide people. Wow, I didn't know that. I I honestly can't remember being ever in the chat rooms myself because I, I think so much of the time I would just like. I already knew who I was going to be playing with, so we would just like jump into the same chat room, lock it or something, and then go straight into in, in mm. the game from there. Um, and all of our chat was done. Um, do you remember? Oh, there's so many things I'm trying to remember. Um, do you remember if, when you were doing the uh, multiplayer questing together, if one person, I think what happened was you had to both agree to click on the NPC characters for them. It's like, oh, you know, there's an evil presence underneath the kingdom, blah, blah, blah. Um, so you'd both see the same audio cinematic at the same time as, as synced together? I'm trying to remember how that worked. It might have been... I'm sort of remembering hearing that audio while I was standing in town when somebody else was down in ah, the dungeons so it clicking it. I think triggered by somebody else. I think so. I think first person to click does it for everybody. But that also means that if they finish the quest and it drops the loot at the feet of the the guy you just right. killed, then that's the only person that'll be around to pick it up, I suppose. I, I think you're right, exactly right on that. I think you, you basically earn the right of, uh, of, of first dibs. Um, mm -hmm. The cool thing is I haven't really seen that done since um, Star Wars um, The Old Republic. Did you have a chance to play that new MMO? Uh, very little. Oh, it's, yeah, it's not. It's very forgettable. I think Bioware's biggest flop to date. Um, but maybe um, their only flop. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the cool thing is, in that game, when one player triggers a cinematic uh, for a quest, everybody on the on the, uh, the the team gets to see it, which I thought was really fantastic. And I hadn't really. Oh, and didn't they get to vote on the answer as well? Yes, that's right. Exactly. They added that, which I thought was like really brilliant. You know, that's a. That's a brilliant thing to add to a, an MMO, and I think Diablo was one of the earliest I ever saw that just even triggered the cinematic together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was an early multiplayer game of uh, an, early, an early cooperative multiplayer game, which had its own challenges. Um, I have some some very stark memories of uh, on the other side the competitive aspects. Yeah. I'm not really, I've never really been much of a competitive player. I hated doing the PvP kind of stuff. Yeah. Um. So, but I was subjected to it because you didn't really have a choice between the cheaters and the people who would join amicable games with nefarious intent. The PKs, the player killers. God, I had no idea. <laughs> There were PKs in Diablo. Oh, you're, you you missed out on a big part of the game, and you're probably better <laughs> off for it. Um, there was some hardcore stuff in this game. Number one, if you kill another player, 
first of all, they they drop everything. Anything they're wearing, that's right. They drop it on the ground. You are your corpse is naked, and you have to run back to your corpse. If you didn't kill everything, then Satan help you because <laughs> you have no weapon in your hand. You have no gear. You're just gonna die and die and die. And I think that's you right. also dropped half your gold. So the person who killed you pretty much had dibs to take whatever gear they wanted from you and they might leave you without any weapon whatsoever and if you're an archer with no weapon then good luck to you you're gonna be you're gonna be a dexterous puncher which is not (laughs) worth much of a damn um what you also dropped when another player killed you was your ear so there would be a little inventory item ear ear of blackjack that was the name of my character blackjack that was my (laughs) character's name in a lot of games (laughs) so i uh, had a little collection of other players ears either because i had I had killed them or because the player killer killed so many people in a day that they couldn't be bothered to pick up anyone's ear. And I think the higher level that person was, the more you could sell their ear for at the uh, blacksmith. That is and... really funny. You just reminded me of that happened very rarely because we always had this rule that, you know, if you had if you were under friendly fire, the other person would bark out, stop, you know, stop fucking hitting me with your arrows. Um, yeah. And, we, you know, you'd be, care- you'd be a lot more careful but occasionally, what would happen was you'd misclick while you're trying to click on a skeleton. The other, you know, your um, your tank or your warriors hacking away at the skeleton. You accidentally killed somebody. And in our guild, well, it was not really a guild, but in our little multiplayer group, the deal was there was like uh, how would you, how would I put it? There was there was a friendly way to do it, which was you'd run over, grab the person's gear, grab everything, and then uh, teleport back to town and kind of like profusely apologize. And uh-huh. give them back their ear along with all of their possessions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's so funny! I had no idea people actually would take advantage of that. That's pretty. Uh, shows how how naive I was as a teenager. Oh sure. Well, you're you're lucky to have had that uh, bubble of safety around you. <laughs> so I guess one other experience then, which you uh, no doubt had to participate in, but uh, were unaware of the perils surrounding it. Um, this was a game where you could trade inventory items with other people, yes. but there was no mechanic for you to do so. There was no interface for That's you to right. do so. The way that you would trade in this game is that you would drop it on the ground, and the other person would click it on the ground and pick yep. it up. So you couldn't have a secure trade if it was a four-player game. This happens so often. You would want to trade with some guy in town, and there would be some third wheel just kind of standing five steps away, waiting for you to drop your thing so that they could click it first and steal it from you. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the Craigslist slash slash Kijiji uh, approach to uh, getting your shit stolen. Pretty much. (laughs) Pretty much. Um, So... Assuming that you were lucky enough to just have to worry about the person you were trading with, because maybe that was an unscrupulous person too, right. there would be all these rules where you <laughs> you would like say, okay, you're gonna you drop you stand ten paces away from me, you <laughs> drop the money, I'm gonna stand ten paces away from you, and I'll drop the gear. Exactly. Then we'll run towards we each run, other's yeah. thing. That's right. And I so sometimes have, I must have seen this happen <laughs> at least once because I have very good memories of it. Um, it's so funny. People like it was like basically like high noon. It's like okay, the count of ten, bra. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and 
Uh, it was especially difficult if the thing that you were purchasing from someone cost more than 5,000 gold, because right. every stat, you only had stacks of 5,000. So if you had to drop 20,000 gold, it takes you a while to drag those four stacks onto the ground, and you have to keep an eye on the other guy to see whether he's running towards you while you're dropping these stacks of gold, which, of course, make this extremely loud jingling sound that everyone 20 miles from you can hear. That's right. It, there was, like, there was like no, uh, what's the word, there was no um, sound limitation, so everyone in town would hear fucking gold dropping. That's right. That's and their great. ears perk up and they come running from a mile away. It's like <laughs> zombies hearing the splatter of blood somewhere. The funny thing is, like, everything you've described so far basically explains, we'll get this into a future episode, but every one of my experiences in Ultima Online, like a couple of years later, basically it sounds like all of the PKs and all of the cheaters got their, got their techniques uh, perfected in Diablo and then said, well, now we can really abuse the shit out of this with 500,000 players around us. Oh, no doubt. No <laughs> doubt. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so that's about the extent of my Diablo experience. I played it a whole bunch. I absolutely loved it. We killed Diablo so very many times. I love the... I never ever got tired of the uh, the ending animation, and it had like oh, a yeah. slightly different animation depending on which of the classes you were playing as. Oh, um, I didn't actually know that. Really? Oh, well, at the end of Diablo, you kill Diablo, and... Uh, yeah, sorry for spoilers, I'm saying if the game is it like 20 years old. It has a great cinematic when you should have played it. It's a really cool cinematic, because Diablo... Diablo dies, and he turns into, like, this uh, a human being. Yeah. And he has, like, a, a crystal stuck in his head, I think. And the way right. that you have to imprison him is that you pick up the crystal, and you jam it into jam your it. own head. This oh, huge, like... pointy, like, dagger spike of a crystal. You jam it into your own head. And so when it shows you screaming, because it doesn't tickle when you stick a huge right. thing in your head it shows that's the only time in a cinematic that it shows you your player oh so, that's funny i didn't depending really on which of, of the models you chose wow i didn't realize you get it uh for every different model i think i always played as the same uh warrior every single time uh so yeah you should oh yeah you'll have to see on youtube or something like that then because it, there's amazing. a a different scream and a different animation for each of the... Maybe not even animation, but just a different model yeah. for each of the, the classes that you can pick. It's a very satisfying cinematic for the end of, like, a very hardcore kind of dungeon romp. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, right. al it also... Um, the, the other thing about Diablo, this is not directly related to multiplayer, but I, I physically, like, get excited when I think of the um, two things. One is the intro music uh, that that's on the... Uh, uh, on the um, the menu screen for Diablo, it just has, like, the greatest, mm -hmm. oh, most, like, foreboding music on Earth where you think you're, like, going to go journey into the heart of evil. Um, All the music is unbelievably good. Oh, it's incredible. And the town music. That town uh, Tristram, Tristram theme mm -hmm. is something I've spent the last ten years learning how to play on guitar, and I still can't play it. <laughs> well, um, so the soundtrack was made by a guy named Matt Ullman. Yes. And he's gone on to work for another company. I don't remember what they were called now. Uh, they made a game called Fate, which oh. is exactly like Diablo, but it was a little shareware kind of a game. And it was very, very good, but it had no ending and no story. You just keep going deeper and deeper and getting more gear. Oh. And you have a pets. And then um, he went to work for whatever company it was that made Torchlight and Torchlight 2. Oh, I didn't know um, he did the Torchlight music. That's actually pretty cool. Yeah, he did. And so he... It, some people... Uh, who didn't realize it was the same composer. They're like, oh, it's the same kind of a music, and it's the same right. kind of a, a town theme like with the guitar. Diablo. 
That's right, but it's it's the guy, and not oh. only is it the the guy, but it's also what has what is agreed upon to be called the guitar. He has this like <laughs> guitar made out of metal, and that is what makes this incredibly unique sounding timbre of guitar plucking oh. in the Tristram theme, and he also like reprises it in the other Diablo games and in other similar games where he was hired. Because it's Holy this one shit. absolutely striking, unique sounding guitar that you just cannot duplicate with any other instrument because he has this incredible sounding thing. That is so funny because you just explain like a question I had in my head. I was like, I don't understand what kind of guitar that's coming from because I played that theme on five different guitars and each of them kind of sounds basically the same. That is so crazy. Oh, it just has this this special sort of tinny resonance that doesn't sound like any other exactly. guitar. It so... sounds like the mixture from to me between like a steel slide guitar and like an old beat up like spruce top guitar. I I can't explain it. It sounds like so. Sounds like it came from like a manufactured by a hobo in some small like village. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. cool. I um. <laughs> it I is cool. I don't know if I ever told you the story, but when I was I think 18 or 19 or 20, I actually emailed Matt Ullman, and mm. I guessed his email address. I, I can't, to this day, remember where he was working. Maybe he was working for Blizzard at the time still. Um, mm. I think he actually was. He was like kind of pre-Diablo 2 at the time. And I guessed his email address, emailed him, and he sent me this really polite reply. Um, he was a really good guy. He just, I just said, is there any way possible that you have the Tristram music in higher quality because, oh my God, I'm so in love with that theme. And, mm. you know, it's just, just like a funny thing that some random asshole over the internet says. And he was so kind about it. He wrote back and he said, oh, you know, I wish I had it, but honestly, I recorded that on an old tape recorder. Um, and, uh, and you know, he was like, he was like I was literally just um, pissing around with different music and I just happened to have that old recording on the tape recorder and the one in Diablo 1 is not much better, uh, or sorry, it's not much worse than the original tape recording, so... I was just huh. like, oh, that's so sweet of you to even write back. Oh, and a story to boot. That's really nice. Yeah, I was exactly. Oh. He he said it was just like on a shitty handheld tape recorder he did it on. So it, he said in his living room or in his bedroom or something like that. Oh, wow. Well, so, it really does shine shine through and sound good. Whatever audio engineering they did after the fact did it a lot of justice, I guess. Yeah, and it also has like, doesn't it have like a wavetable synth playing like this really haunting flute or something in the background? Or am I oh, I don't even. Too? I don't think it's wavetable. It was all. It was all digitally recorded. I bet it was live really? instruments. Cause oh my some god! Of the re- that's incredible. It's beautiful. It might be live. In- I, you know what? It could very well be a MIDI thing. I don't know, but it is a very uh, like kind of an Amazonian flute sounding yeah. thing. This like wailing, forlorn sort of a flute. What a great theme it is, and it really sets the tone for how dour the rest of the game turns out to be. Oh, no, you, you, you're giving me shivers. Oh, I can just like, hear, I that know, entire, <laughs> <laughs> hear that entire theme in my head. Okay, so well, that was Diablo. Holy crap. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I will, I will say that I have the rest of the soundtrack as well, and the rest of it is kind of like this uh, industrial electronic sort of a thing, but very low-key, yeah. not, not like thumping four on the floor, kick drums or anything like that, but really, really spooky scary, like, uh, animals braying and demons crying kind of music. It is so cool and very, very spooky, very, very dark. It's it's amazing. that The only time I remember getting excited about a soundtrack after that was a few years later with Fallout. Uh, Mark Morgan's amazing uh, 
amazing soundtrack, which I think also has some crazy stuff in it. But okay, um, uh, what should we talk about next? I've got like so many freaking games listed here. I know we're not, we're not even going to have time to cover them all today, but that's okay. We that's will fine. take it to another episode if we must. Yeah, but we still it is. It's a great problem to have. We still have time though. Do you want to take the next one? Sure. Uh, I just got a tiny funny story, so this won't even really count as one. Um, this is this okay. is like this is like that asshole kid who says, "Oh come on, I died in like the first five seconds. Let me let me go again." Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what what story was actually? This was related to Joe's podcast. He covered. Um, uh, amazing submarine simulation by the name of uh, shoot, uh, it slips my mind. Oh, was like, it six eighty eight? Ah, yes. And somebody mentioned six eighty eight attack sub, and that brought back a memory. So thank you, Joe's listener. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Father Beast. Um, somebody <laughs> mentioned six eighty eight attack sub, and I got this is so fucking embarrassing. Um, okay, when I was a very young man, I had a two eighty six that did not have a modem yet. And a friend of mine had 688 Attack Sub, which was one of the first 256 color games I ever saw. And mm. did, did you ever play this title? I played the demo, which I must have gotten from a magazine disc or something. Okay. I played it so many times. And I might have, I might have played it in 256 colors. Yeah, it, it had, like, really incredible visuals. And, and it had these... Yeah. It, the PC speaker had these... Um, uh, what, what are they called? Um, PCM sounds. uh, uh so you could actually hear, mm-hmm. like, the sound of the sonar. And I was really taken by it. But the problem is I had no freaking idea how to play that game. You know, um, I knew that you're supposed to track down other subs, but I didn't really understand the point. And I'd always get stuck mm-hmm. in the submarine simulation demo thing that they had going. But one day I found out that the game supported modem play. And I was just like, oh. yeah, the game supported several things. It had no modem cable, and it also had modem to modem via dial-up. So I was just like, so I was reading this manual, and it just sounded incredible. You could play over the phone lines. And, like, 12-year-old me thinks this is the craziest thing I've ever heard of. Uh, so this is really embarrassing. Um, hopefully, I, I pray that one of our listeners is just or just as dense as me. I told my, called my friend, and I said, okay. So the manual says that one person has to be the dialer and the other person has to be the receiver. So I'll put my machine on receive and you dial my phone number and, you know, and we'll try to connect and try to start mm-hmm. the sub. So we spent the next four hours trying to initiate this modem connection and neither of us had modems in our computers. Uh-huh. So it was like literally like, okay, try a different COM port. Oh, well, that doesn't work. So try like instead of 8 and 1, try like 8, yes, 0 or something. <laughs> and like going through every possible permutation of modem setting until it's, you know, it was years later. Like by 1994, then I'm like, oh, you actually need a modem card in your computer. And then I'm like, that kind of makes sense. There was no phone line pl- plugged into my computer. I guess there's... <laughs> Mm-hmm. So it was a little <laughs> embarrassing, um, you know. When I finally did get a modem, by that point, I had kind of lost interest in 688. But yeah, that's pretty. Funny. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> All right, good story. So what's up next on your list? <laughs> okay. Oh no, that was your that was your freebie before that you was, pick one. That was my freebie. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, this is again skipping ahead since we're doing this, you know, uh, non chronologically. Here is a Might and Magic Two. Uh, did you ever play this multiplayer or? No. Player? I haven't played any of this series. 
Oh my God, I I could just go on for days um, about Heroes of Might and Magic. For anybody who hasn't played it, I think hands down one of the best top-down strategy games of all time. Um, it owes a lot to its predecessors, I'm sure, um, but visually and it has everything going for it. Um, it's basically just a fantasy-themed game where you're trying to take over your opponent's territory. But the best part of this game is exploring the map because it's got this fog of war kind of effect going on. And you explore the map, you take your little knight who represents all of your little uh, minions, and every time it's got two modes. There's an overworld mode where you explore the map and you run up to these little treasures and you open them up and it's like, oh, you got plus 100 experience. Or you discover a cache of, hidden cache of gems and your, your kingdom gets 500 gems or whatever it's going to be. There's a mixture of these random um, community chest kind of encounters. And the battle mode, which is just a standard, uh, how would I put it, um, a standard kind of uh, grid-based combat where your 50 harpies and your 20 knights are versus their, you know, uh, 200 goblins and 50 werewolves kind of thing. Um, but the game had several multiplayer modes, which I was just in love with. In university, my first year of university, we would go over to my buddy's house, and, you know, there's pizza boxes laying all over the floor, and they would spend all of Friday night after school basically playing Hot Seat Heroes of Might and Magic 2. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I have, like, incredible memories of just everyone, you know, taking turns, and you'd, you'd order everybody out of the room while you're taking your turn because, you know, you didn't want them <laughs> to see what was happening. And so, you know, we'd have this thing where, you know, you'd be sent off to the living room for five minutes and go eat some pizza, and then when you came back, it was your turn. Um, <laughs> oh, my God, it was just, like, so much fun. The um, Here's My Magic 2 had also... Um, I really hope Ben's listening to this because be still my heart. Um, it has an operatic soundtrack. I don't know if you knew about this. Hmm. It's no. Yeah, it's by um, the the name of the composer slips my mind right now. He did all of the Heroes of Might and Magic games. I want to say it's Yawn something Moorhead, but I think I'm confusing with the Betrayal at Condor guy. Um, anyway, mm. oh, actually no, it's um. Shit, it just slipped my mind. I almost had it there for a second. Uh, anyway, what he did was he has these pretty good um, synth wavetable soundtracks, but this is mind-blowing. He actually got opera singers to sing opera on the Red Book audio tracks. And Oh, that's something. Oh, he, Paul Romero. Paul Romero, yes, thank you. Yeah, Paul Romero. Look and um, he has some of the best sound I just I mean the idea of opera in a game period is amazing but the opera in this is particularly good and they have two or three different um, opera voices I believe and anybody who doesn't like opera will be in I think instantly just enchanted by the music it's incredible that's quite something you don't get that a heck of a lot at all yeah I, can... I don't think I know of any other game that uses opera I, I'm sure there are modern games that do now but um, I certainly haven't seen them. <laughs> Yeah, the only one I can really think of is Gabriel Knight 2. I don't oh, know whether you've right. played that I one. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. These ones have, I think, four or five opera tracks, and I believe even in the options, there's a, a toggle so you can turn opera on or off. 
Um, <laughs> Opera toggle, I love it. Yeah, and I was just like, what an awesome idea. And I think what it does is he wow. basically just recorded, there's like 50, I found I found the CD the other day and I was listening to it, there's like 50 tracks on it, and he basically offer, has a version with opera and a version without. Wowee. I know. Every game should have an opera toggle. I know. I was just like, oh, that's amazing. So, yeah, mm-hmm. Heroes 2 was my, I, I think that's one of those games that when Heroes 2 and 3 uh, less so Heroes 4 and 5, but 2 and 3, when they come up for sale on GOG, that's like an automatic yes, go, go out and buy that thing. Hmm. So you only play that in Hot Seat? Um, I play, you know what's funny? I played it only in Hot Seat in university, and then I got my sister crack addicted to it. She's not like a huge gamer by any means, but I remember one year I went and bought her Heroes... Uh, it was Heroes 3, and then I bought her all of the add-ons, which were like... 40 bucks a piece for Christmas one year. And Ooh. my sister and I sat down, this was a couple of years ago, sat down and played the living shit out of Heroes 3 via uh, TCPIP. And, oh, it was just like so much fun. It's just like a game. And the great thing is, with the multiplayer game, you can save your game so you can come back to it a few days or a few weeks later. Oh, very nice. Yeah, it was, it's, it's an incredible experience. I think... That's the kind of game that you, you would imagine like playing by email over months and months and months. Um, and I don't think I've actually ever finished a single Heroes 3 multiplayer campaign. They're extremely long. They kind of go like a game of risk. They'll go over weeks if they could. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that game, that game pays off um, in so many ways. The uh, I, I don't know how to explain it. Taking over each other's kingdoms. Because the second, the trick is when you take your champion or your knight to your enemy's castle, and if you defeat them, you get to take over the castle. So there's a bit of a capture the flag thing going on or team fortress thing going on. And okay. um, it, so it just makes it like this terrible thing where you're just abusing each other for days or months on end. So, yeah, I, I love Heroes 2 and 3. Fantastic games. Neat. I, I somehow never came across those games. None of my friends played them. And... Uh... I, I it was until it wasn't until much later that I heard about them. The only impression that they ever made on me was when I read something about them in an old PC gamer magazine, Heroes of Might oh. and Magic, and they abbreviated it as Homam. Oh. And so that's all I knew about it was that you could call it Homam, which I liked. That's awesome. Cool. Uh-huh. So what do you got next on your list? Okay, well, you mentioned something about playing by email, so that helps me choose what I'm going to ah, talk about for cool. my next game, um, which is a game called Gazillionaire. Are you oh, familiar man. with this one? Yeah, you know what's funny? I think a year or two ago you sent me a copy of it, and Gazillionaire is mm. amazing. It was one of those games that I was so put off by the box that I didn't play it when it first came out. <laughs> <laughs> I can believe that. I can believe that. I played it first uh, as a, a magazine uh uh, demo version with a PC Gamer magazine. Oh, cool. And I played the demo so, 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 so much. So, Gazillionaire is basically, it's very similar to the game of Monopoly, I'd say. Right. It's kind of like halfway between Monopoly and like Privateer. Oh, Of all things. So, very it's a game American. where, yeah, I, I guess so. It's a game where you, like a buy, buy low, sell high kind of a game. Right. You buy, uh, you buy cargo and you pick up passengers on one planet and you have to car you have to determine what other planet uh will uh, has the highest demand right uh, for the products that uh, there is the highest supply where you are and then you cart 
your uh, materials over from one place to the other and you sell it for a profit. And the idea is to get the highest profit to win. You're playing against other players, which are probably other NPCs, but uh, you can also play against real people. Right. So I played that single player a, 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 a gazillion times, we'll say, um, before acquiring, never purchasing the full version of the game, even to this day. It's just too expensive. It's like 30 bucks or something, which I don't know why. Considering how much I played it, I probably should have bought it like four times over by now. That's but ridiculous. It was so always... is the game still available? So this game is available today as a web-based uh... game, which you can pretty well play for free, which I really appreciate. Um, and this game must be <laughs> like a good 25 years old or so. Like yeah. the first versions of this game were for Windows 3.1 and to this right. day they've been updating it a little bit every few years and making oh. it executable on modern systems. Uh, it is just an an inexplicably very very fun game. Mostly I guess because, you know, in at its essence it's like this economics and business kind of a simulation game, like a tycoon game you would say. Right. But it is wrapped in this really ridiculous, silly way where the art style is very outlandish and crazy. It's all in space with these really weird space aliens. There's all these crazy sound effects, and the colors are all bright and rainbowy and psychedelic, and all the the aliens look extremely strange and have silly names. Uh, and the scenarios that you come across are all, you know, they all have repercussions on how quickly you get to the next planet or how much you can gotcha. sell your thing for if you lose your cargo to pirates or to some union dispute uh, with your or your crew or something like that. Um, but it, it's all really silly in its presentation, but it has these serious repercussions on your success for that turn. Yeah, I remember um, I remember that the uh, cover had this like goofy looking it was like a it was like a man in a business suit with this massive like Greedo mask on. I don't know if you ever saw that. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was like very intentionally goofy. And I remember when I saw it, I was just like, uh, I don't, I don't think I want to play that. But as it turns it's... out, I massively missed out. Yeah, there is kind of like a dichotomy between the 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 perceived tone of the game and what you actually do. Right. And it's kind of miraculous that I, you know, it's a good thing that I had this as a demo disc because I'm sure I never would have played it if I had to judge it based on its box or even its description. So but I played it, it so, the, so, so much. What did the demo or the shareware version lock you out from? It was just uh, the game ends after you make your first million dollars or something like okay. that. And in the full version, you can set how much you want the win state to be. And right. then when you get to that win state, it's you can choose to keep going to the next increment, like to 2 million and to 10 million and 100 million. It can pretty much go like ad infinitum wow. if you allow it to. And you sort of kind of, after a certain point, there's one clear-cut winner. And if you really want to hang on to it, then you can keep continuing to win exponentially more uh, than uh, your competitors. Gotcha. But, so the the real fun is kind of climbing ahead of the others and strategizing to put yourself into that state, not to keep persisting once you're already there. That's awesome. But I like that it lets you. It's yeah. it's rare that a, a strategy game lets you continue past the end as long as you want, so I really like that. Yeah, I, it reminds me a lot of... Um, I played like basically a hacked-down version of Gazillionaire called Space Trader on the Palm Pilot. And um, hmm. the it's it basically is like an identical game. They basically just stripped out, I think, a lot of the extra functionality, especially the visual stuff, because it's all black and white. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's funny how amazingly well balanced those uh, games are for multiplayer. 
Oh, yes, definitely so. Well, it's, at its heart, it is a multiplayer game. Even though you can play it single player, exactly. the idea is that you're competing against other players who have the same motivations as you do, and the stock that you're buying, there are of limited quantities, and in fact, the quantity of stock determines the price. And so if something is in uh, very low supply, then everyone's going to try to gravitate there, and depending on whose ship is the fastest and whose cargo holds are the biggest, it will determine how much of the product they get and whether there's any left by the time you get there. Yeah. So good uh, good competing factors. That's awesome. Um, and you can choose a different... Uh, when you start out, you can choose... Uh, from I think sixteen or twelve ships or so, each of them have you know different speeds or different cargo holds or different numbers of uh, passengers that you can optionally. Well, I guess I say you can optionally take passengers when you're going from place to place, right. but you can actually make passengers your primary means of uh, income if you want to, and oh. not worry too much about the uh, the cargo. Oh, cool! So I like all that flexibility. There's a lot of different ways that you can go, and so um, I played this. Just one-on-one -on -one with friends with the other... You know, there's always six players, so the other four were always the computer-controlled gotcha. uh, players. And I played them mostly in hot seat, where, just as you described, you would ask the other person to look away, and it wouldn't take as much as five minutes. It might be, like, two minutes or so that you would take right. your turn and then fly off to the next place, and then uh, <laughs> you take your turn, the other person takes their turn, and then it increments to the next day, where they, all of the... Uh, all of the things that you've set into motion uh, come to pass. Oh, I so see. I so, what, this... so there's basically like uh, you set an orders phase, and then there's like an execution phase afterwards. Yeah, pretty much. Um, depending on where you are going, um, and where depending on where every player has decided to go, um, you go in the order of whenever you've arrived at your destinations. That okay. depends on how fast your ship goes and how far away your destination was. Right. So if you're all going to the same place, it depends on where you're coming from, how fast the ship was, and then whether people, uh, the people who arrived before you purchased everything. That's really and you funny. have to settle for something lesser. Um, so that it, it's kind of it's a lot like a board game in that respect, and there's nothing too remarkable about the experience of playing two people in the same room, one person waiting for the other person to go, right. except that you hope that... Uh, the, the only interesting thing, I guess, is that um, you can... Every now and then there will be something for you to purchase on a sh on a, a planet. It will be like some kind of a, a tariff agreement where the person who owns this dry dock or something will take a small fee. Like they, everyone has to pay a small fee. It's like uh, rent in yeah, Monopoly in, when you land Monopoly, on somebody's yeah. piece. And so you have to uh, – at the end of a turn there might be an auction where all players have to put in a bid. and the high, It's a blind ah. auction and whoever put in the highest bid wins that, uh, uh, that uh, tariff. That's awesome. So – uh, that's, that was the biggest thing where you wouldn't want the other person to see so that they couldn't do the, the price is right sort of a thing and bid $1 higher than you. <laughs> so um, playing it, it was unremarkable otherwise having people play in the same room, but what this game did that I wasn't even aware that other games had was that it let you play by email. And oh, just as you really? say, I don't think I ever I don't think I ever bothered playing a whole game because it takes forever to play a whole game by email. It's basically one or two turns a day, and this is a game where you'll probably take like 200 turns or so to finish a game. Wow. But it was there. You would send a little file to someone. I don't think the game actually had an email client built in, so it would save a little file that you would have to attach to an email and send manually and then import into your game otherwise. So it was pretty pretty clunky. It was a lot of effort for a very short term and turn. And especially in the beginning of the game, there's so little that you do in a turn, you would play for like 45 seconds and then wait for six hours for your, per right. your friend to reply with theirs. So it wasn't very satisfying to begin with. But I love that at least it gave you the option to do that. And it was a cool, low-tech, uh, asymmetrical multiplayer 
experience. Yeah, play by email. It's funny how very few games actually even supported that. Um, I was trying to think. I can't even really think any games off the top of my head that I, I know even support play by email. Well, you mentioned Might and Magic had that feature? Uh, uh, no, actually. Um, it just... Oh. Yeah, it just had... Um, oh, sorry, I was just comparing it to a play-by-email kind of experience. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, no, it didn't actually have that. It had several multiplayer modes. I know it had, like, TCPIP, I think IPX, SPX. Um, I think Heroes Might Magic 2 even had modem support and null modem uh, support, too. Um, I think, actually, TCP, I think TCPIP didn't appear till Heroes 3. Um, Heroes 2 is mm-hmm. mostly a modem-based experience or LAN, LAN IPX experience. Um, geez, you know what? I want to say that Heroes 1 or 2 might have had a play-by-email mode or something like that. I, I'm just remembering an option in one of the menus for some reason, um, but I don't remember when or how or why that might have come up, so I, I'm totally imagining things at this point, I'm sure. Well, it was definitely a rare thing because there wasn't that much of an overlap between when uh, multiplayer gaming by modem occurred and when the internet became popular. So you had to have an internet account of some sort to have an email address. Exactly. So it wasn't long until you could actually play something over the internet after that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, you know, when when TCP IP became a thing, that's, yeah, exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. So that's about as much as I have to say about Gazillionaire, except that you know it it uh, stands repeating how just wacky and memorable all the silly sound effects and how awesome the art is. My wife and I we love we both love this game, and <laughs> it's uh, it's the kind of game where you know we'll we'll repeat the stupid uh, the stupid sound effects to each other just for fun out <laughs> of the blue, and we'll know what the other is talking about. So highly highly recommend it. I think gazillionaire.com is where you can uh, play the game. I'll stick it in the show notes at any rate. Awesome. And the um, new web version that they upgraded the graphics, or are they more or less stayed pretty much the same? Oh, yeah. So they sort of upgraded the graphics little by little over the years. Okay. By far, the version that I like the best is the original Windows 3.1. Gotcha. Um, they sort of did kind of a, a Windows XP, sort of a play doh aesthetic, where the buttons are kind of like big and colorful looking. It didn't really okay. do it for me. I sort of like the crisp squares you, of the you uh, like your original. Gray, your gray squares? That's right, the Microsoft clinical business-like spreadsheet look. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that brings up that, that that's a perfect segue then, because I wasn't sure what to go with next, so I have to talk about the worst thing I have ever made. Um, I made, um, speaking of Microsoft's ugly uh, uh, GUI called, I think it was called um, 3D, like 3D.OCX. I hmm. made, you know, 1996 or 95, um, while awaiting Ultima Online to come out, I was so desperate for online multiplayer because there was very little in that day, in those days. Um, I made the worst thing I've ever made called Smaltima Online. <laughs> Smaltima. <laughs> Do tell. I thought I was being very clever. Uh, in those days, <laughs> my boss had taught me Visual Basic for Windows, um, VB. And oh, yeah. I think I had VB4 or VB5, and I went home that summer, or that I sh- no, that winter, and spent a lot of time on IRC, and I had learned how to program the Winsock uh, DLL. So, mm, to play multiplayer over the internet. Yeah, so what I did was, I didn't know how to make a tile-based game, but I did know how to make a uh, uh, Visual Basic, um, I don't know what to call it, like a GUI, which had um, 
blocks on it, basically buttons. So what I did was I changed one of the buttons to actually be a, 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 a BMP, like an actual character. And mm-hmm. the goal, so it used um, the WinSockets um, OCX, and you could connect to another person as long as you knew their IP address and move your characters around on this 2D space. There was no scrolling, so you're limited to literally the boundaries of the, uh, the window and mm-hmm. send chat messages to each other. <laughs> Yay! So it was, a, it was a chat client where you could walk around on a tic-tac-toe board, basically? That's exactly what it was. <laughs> and I think I, think I even put um, a, a tree in the center of the screen, and if you ran into the tree, there was like some sort of collision logic, so you couldn't walk past the tree. Uh, oh, that's awesome. It was like the worst thing I ever made. And I remember I was like, hey, guys, do you want to play my game? I made like this online game and everyone's like, and I remember I had like two or three people in the IRC chat room. They, I, but I was blown away. When I got them, when, when another person over the internet connected to me and all of a sudden was sending chat messages uh, to my screen, I was just like, oh, my God, I've, you know, I've created a created universe. That is cool. It's a massively multiplayer <laughs> <laughs> online forest. Yeah, it was pretty pretty awful. So yeah, that was a that was <laughs> it was pretty bad. And I remember it was unbelievably um, unstable too. It would lock up our machines after she sent up a certain number of messages. I have no idea why. I bet you, I bet you, you know, using the OCX I was using, you're probably supposed to do garbage collection on your memory after you know five or six chat messages. But, uh, mm. you know, I obviously didn't know how to do any of that stuff. I just knew how to send messages back and forth. So at some mm. point, it would, like, hard lock your Windows 3.1 installation. Oh, like buffer overflow or whatever? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you'd have to reset your machine. So that was not very popular. I think we used it exactly once in the IRC channel, and people were like, you know, get that shit out of here. That's basically a virus. <laughs> now, you know, did you ever play a game by Terry Kavanaugh? called Chat Chat. Oh, God, yeah, I love Chat Chat. <laughs> it's so funny. It's it, pretty much exactly what you're describing with, like, just a modicum more thought put into it. Exactly. And it was just like, and for some reason, it's like I inexplicably, um, I don't know, like, involving, I, I got, or Shaw Chat, or if you want to say it in French. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> That's right. It's like, for anybody who hasn't played Shaw Chat or, or Chat Chat, it's a Terry Kavanaugh game where... You log in Commodore 64 graphics style or um, ZX Spectrum style, and you move this cat around on the screen. But the great thing is you can move from room to room. So each room is set up like its own individual space, and the server remembers the positions of everything in the room. So you can run into one room, grab a dead mouse, and carry it to another room. And I, I can't explain why I, I've spent half an hour just exploring around, moving the, these dead rodents around, and then... Other cats run up to you who are other players and go meow at you or they type dirty messages to you. It is bizarre. I can't remember now whether you could actually type anything but meow or do you like type something and it always comes out as meow? I can't remember I either. Remember. Yeah, I, can't, I just remember there's like some, some modicum of communication happening in the game. <laughs> oh, it was way too cute. Oh, yeah. oh, and the other thing I want to mention, since you mentioned Winsock, are you familiar with an old, one of the oldest websites I can think of, which was called Two Cows? Oh, God, yeah, yeah, definitely. Two Cows was like a massive shareware repository, wasn't it? That's right. Well, in fact, do you remember what Two Cows stands for? No, I never it's did. An acronym. I, no, I never did know what that stood for. 
Ah, uh, yeah. I don't know where I learned this, but I've, it's one of my favorite acronyms. Uh, the, so it's T-U-C-O-W-S, two cows, yep. and it stands for the Ultimate Collection of Winsock Software. You're because it was all me. originally like modem-based uh, shareware. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's really funny because two cows was the place I go to for like my weekly fix of like uh, of Windows 3.1 related um, internet stuff. Exactly, exactly. That's really funny. I'm I think sure. it was a Toronto website, too, actually. You're kidding me. Holy crap. Um, and it's still out there, too, as a matter of fact. I think it's a little different. I don't know if they're a web host or something now, but it's the same people in the same URL, twocows.net.org, I forget. That's mind-blowing. I remember um, there was one really exciting thing. This is, like, off-topic, but it's, it was exciting for me at the time. When I was working at the ISP up north, Two Cows, at some point, started hosting the... Um, Oh, you know what? I'm con- sorry. I'm confusing it with another place. Sorry. I I was going to say it was hosting the BSD Unix uh, uh, live in- live CD that you can install online. Uh, but oh. But I'm confusing that I- with another repository called. Um, oh, it was on Oak something drive. Shit. What was it called? Um, oh yeah, uh, Oak CD-ROM or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so it was Oak. Oh, oh, shit, Walnut Creek. That's what it was called, Walnut Creek. Oh, Walnut Creek is what you're thinking of. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Walnut Creek. Sorry, Sonny, I'll, I'll cut that story. I'll save that if we ever do an episode on, uh, like, massive uh, CD-ROM distribution. Um, Walnut Creek was a big deal. Um, but two cows... Oh, that's right, ftp.cd-rom.com. That's, that's exactly the one I was thinking of. Yeah, and I was confusing it with two cows because it was, like, ftp.twocows.com. Um, oh, and uh, Jason Scott, the uh, textfiles.com archivist, he has every Walnut Creek, every Walnut Creek CD-ROM up for uh, download. Really? At, That's uh, amazing. Archive.org. That's not yeah, a every single amount one. of storage. Oh, yeah, it's it's several gigabytes. I think it's 30 or 40 gigabytes of shareware <laughs> CDs. So That's, we love you, Jason Scott. That's awesome. Yeah, he's like a, a, a very opinionated guy about his uh, software collecting. I really appreciate it. Very much so. Always entertaining. <laughs> All right. So, what do we have next? Uh oh. So I I just did gazillionaire. That would make it your turn. Okay. Um, did I miss something? Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Since we're on that, I think. What about? Um, did you ever connect to the Sierra Network or Imagination Network? Oh, I'm glad we're talking about this. I only connected to it years and years later when they had the Imagination Network revival, which was the free. Me too. Uh, I think I'm. Free resurrection. I think I might have connected to it once as a kid in the days when I was connecting to Pro- Prodigy, CompuServe. Um, there was one other service I can't remember. Uh, Genie, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But I only connected once in those days, and uh, I think there was like a half-hour trial period, um, and I definitely couldn't afford it because it was outrageously expensive by the time. So, it yeah. was like twenty bucks for nine hours or something, something crazy like, like that. that. It was. Very expensive. Yeah, it was crazy expensive, and the at first you couldn't even get an unlimited connection account. You could only pay, you know, and and after that uh, they jacked up the rate too. Like it was like ten dollars an hour after that or something. Um, oh my gosh! Yeah, it was outrageous. But for anybody who is not familiar with it, the Sierra Network or um, Imagination Network was a pretty brilliant idea. It was actually the brainchild of Ken Williams and. One of the Sierra programmers, and his name doesn't come to mind right now, um, they basically said it would be really, really cool if you could play Sierra Adventure games online, um, but that kind of didn't quite work out from what I understand, and 
they basically only could get certain things to function. And one of the things that they got to function right off the bat was um, uh, the Hoyle's Book of Games. Did you ever play that series of games? Oh, yeah. I played the very first one, actually. I don't know if I played any subsequent ones, but the first one I played on my 8086 in uh, CGA. Me too. I played the living shit out of Hoyle's Book of Games Volume 1. Um, totally, um, absolutely, it's like, loved it. And they got some some form of that game working online. I think that eventually became a suite of games that they would offer in this online presence, which was way ahead of its time. This was like 1989 that it started. Um, was it that early? Yeah, this was like way before I even knew about it. They got it functioning in 1989, and then at around 1991-92, it became an online, like you could actually a subscription service that you could connect to. So I think it wasn't commercially mm-hmm. available till '91 or so, but before that, it had been already online for over two years. Okay. And um, yeah, right, because this this network was called two things, as I recall. That's right. It was, I think, ultimately the Imagination Network, but before that, it was the Sierra Network, TSN. Exactly. Yeah, it was TSN when Sierra owned it, and it became, I think, the Imagination Network when it was bought by AT and T or one of those big telecom companies. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, and um, I think it was at its peak during the AT&T years because I think a lot of... I, I At some point, I had written an article years and years ago on uh, the, mm-hmm. the history of the Sierra Network and in. I had the most incredible responses from ex-in uh, players and actually game masters, like um, people who actually ran the service who chimed in on their experience saying, you know, those days working for Sierra were just amazing. Um, and... At some point, I even got a, a reply from, I think, a guy who said he was the last human being on uh, the Imagination Network because he was one of the last people that worked in the Sierra AT&T offices the day that the service was shut down. Um, hmm. Yeah, he was the guy who basically pulled the plug and said goodbye to everybody, and I thought that was a really kind of heartbreaking, sweet story. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, for anybody who hasn't played it, uh, our good friend Ben has been playing uh, one of its two or three, I think three, dungeon crawlers that I actually had where you could play multiplayer dungeon crawling. Uh, the first one, did you ever play Shadows of Euserbius, Yuser- I guess you'd call it? No, I read about it with uh, bated breath in the uh, Interaction magazine, but I never tried it myself. Not until the Revival, anyway, and there was nobody around to play it with. <laughs> yeah, I had the same experience. I played in Revival, which is basically somebody um, backwards... Uh, reverse engineered the client to create a server that would work for it, and it works incredibly well. Um, and uh, Shadows of Euserbius is basically was an AD&D style um, first-person uh, um, RPG in the style of like Eye of the Beholder or something like that. And mm-hmm, but think, multiplayer, yeah, but multiplayer exactly. And I think Ben's playing Fates of Twinion, which is the sequel. I had no idea there were even uh. sequels. Um, yeah, there were three or four of them, as I, yeah. as I recall, and I guess they were all part of the Imagination Network, and you could invoke them, I, I, I guess. Exactly, and I think the third one was called The Ruins of Cawdor, which was basically really cool idea. The developer wrote it as a um, Shakespearean-themed uh, uh, RPG, which I don't think I've ever heard of before. No. Yeah, so they were basically like, yeah, um, an, a mud, a graphical mud that you could play in the Sierra Network. Um there was also Red Baron Online. Um, I don't know if you... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that was supposed to be the big deal. Um, yeah, I think that's the main reason why most people called that thing, because you could have dogfighting. I don't know if it had... It did support more than two people at once, too, didn't it? I think it supported, like, 16, 32, or 64 players uh, simultaneously. Holy frig. Yeah. This is a dial-up thing? Oh, 
over dial-up, over and it did it over twenty four hundred baud, if you can believe that. Holy moly! Yeah, um, they were saying their goal was Ken's goal was he wanted the service to be as universal as possible, so he wanted the programmers to make everything run well over twenty four hundred baud, which I find insane. That is just incredible. I think it that's really is. point three kilobytes a second. I can't remember what our number was that we came up with. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, that's crazy to be able to push that much you know, data over phone line, um, you know, or that much mm-hmm. information over that little uh, amount of phone line. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, Sierra, that's bonkers. Sierra Network is very, very cool. I connected once as a kid, basically couldn't afford to use the service, didn't have a credit card, and my parents would definitely never let me abuse that. Um, I've, yeah. Did I tell the story already about me um, costing Canadian taxpayers uh, a nonprofit organization uh, $1,200, or did I tell you that offline? Uh, yeah. I think you might have told it on the podcast. Okay, yeah. Uh, I think I did, actually. Yes, I did. Um, so yeah. after that episode, yeah, definitely not using my parents' credit card for anything. <laughs> was that the Xbox story? No, that was actually me using the first internet service provider ever, which was by a Canadian nonprofit organization called QSO. Um, maybe I didn't tell the story. I forget whether you did this. I can't remember. Maybe you didn't. I can't remember, but I, well... This is very directly related to this, but um, I'll save it for an episode where we talk about the early internet or ISPs or something, because it is, oh, it's like the kind of thing that just freezes your bone marrow as a 15-year-old when you find out you've racked up a $1,200 phone bill. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, All right, so I'll look forward to that when we when we talk about that uh, topic. <laughs> um now, I have not one but two stories from Francisco Gonzalez related to the Imagination Oh, awesome. Network. I believe the second is also for Imagination Network, because the second one is about a game called The Realm. Oh, The Realm. That, was, that... that was actually an MMO that came out afterwards, but I want to hear about that, too. Okay, well, I'll start off with his Imagination Network story, then. And uh, he strikes a chord with uh, where I have a similar story, but I don't know if we're going to have time to uh, get on to the, talk about the network sure. where that happened to me. So uh, here is Francisco's story, which I shall read. Imagination Network was where I first learned the harsh lesson that people online aren't who they always say they are. I was around 12, I think, and was a little goody-two-shoes, so instead of talking to random people, I started talking to one of the hosts in the chat room. Chloe, I think her name was. Anyway, I had set my avatar to look as close to myself as I could, and naively figured everyone else did, too. So, So Chloe and I had a few nice conversations, and I was happy to have made an online friend. About a week later, I went back on and found her in a chat room, and when I said hello, I saw she had changed her avatar completely. She was still a woman, at least, but had she had changed her hair, race, clothes, everything. For some reason, I freaked out and saw this as a betrayal of trust. <laughs> How could nice Chloe have turned into a different person, so I never spoke to her again? What a tragedy. Oh, oh that is adorable. Oh, <laughs> it is pretty adorable. So we should mention, I suppose, that the avatar that you create for yourself on Imagination Network, and this was a really unique concept uh, for its time. This is yeah. very much akin to, like, the, uh, what do you call your your avatar on, like, the Nintendo Wii? Oh, your me. The me. Yeah. Your me. It was very similar to that sort of a exactly. thing where you... You had this sort of a, a chest-up portrait of yourself, and you could choose your face, like your skin color, the details of your eyes and nose and mouth, and your hair. You could put on a hat, and you could choose a different outfit, which you would just like see your shoulders and uh, an upper chest area. And there were a 
bazillion different options that you could choose. Yeah. And some of them were very silly, and some of them were uh, totally straight edge. You could make someone, as Francisco says, that looks pretty much exactly like you, uh, thanks to all of the many, many choices for each of those individual elements. That's so, awesome. so that's adorable. That's what he's talking to. That's what he's talking about here. That is pretty adorable. I um I, I remember connecting, and that was actually the first thing I did. I was once I managed to get onto the Sierra Network, um, was start to create my uh, profile on my character. And the cool thing was, you could actually I think do it before you even connected online. Like I think you could generate your character um, before you even connected to the service because it was all kind of stored on your local mm. floppy uh, on your on your hard drive. So. Well, you're probably right. That probably saves you like four dollars of connective yeah, time too, at least. And um, I remember because I was like for months, I would like I would just imagine how great this network was. I would actually just spend months or weeks, you know, if I had a spare half hour here or there, creating a new character before I <laughs> I ever connected to the actual online service. Oh, that's too funny. See, I don't, I don't remember ever doing the the avatar, but I do remember running the executable and just seeing the splash screen for the login, which shows Sierra Land or whatever it's called, right. which is like this kind of scenic island with blue skies and uh, beautiful trees and all these inviting-looking buildings, like a saloon and an arena and stuff like that. And I would, I too would sit there imagining and wondering how wonderful this online universe must be. Oh, it was, sadly, it was like it was a beautifully drawn little gooey interface you know it had like the the i think it was called larry land was the casino area mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and uh they had the yeah the, the the coliseum or whatever it was was where you could go play shout out to eusebius um it was incredibly well done yeah. and i i remember somebody, kids. somebody telling me uh on the on the article i wrote one of the people responding said there was like a lot of uh sexy private chats happening in larry land because it was 18 plus only so, That's right. <laughs> I never saw that myself, but I think it's pretty great that, you know, this is interesting that they had like a good mixture of family-oriented and definitely adult-oriented stuff going on. Yeah, I don't really know how you define yourself or verify yourself as a person who is above 18 years of age or if they just relied on your parents having set it up for you and password protecting it or something. I just don't remember. Oh, um, I actually knew that. Um, it was you... Oh, shit. Um... It said, look in your, oh, crap. It had, uh, it slipped my mind. I wrote this down, too, and I can't remember how it worked. Oh. But it had, to, it had to do with checking in your box for the special phone number to call to verify it's an adult. So I think you actually had to call it. Um, to, oh. Yeah. There was, like, a special phone number listed at the back of the manual or something that came with the full version of the Sierra Network. I wonder if they asked you questions or if they were just like specially trained puberty detectors to see how high your voice was. Why, well, uh, oh, of course I'm Dr. Hibbert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, there you are. So did you say that the realm was a part of the Imagination Network no, or something the, that came later? Yeah, the realm came later. It was actually after TSN was just shutting down. And it was, as far as I know, the first MMO ever online. Um, Oh my god. Yeah, it was um it was Sierra's and it's still online today which is unbelievable. Um it's um or maybe Legend of Kazmai was the first online, but it, they were all kind of like two or three of them all went online at the same time and it was basically yeah, a Sierra adventure game. Did you ever play this? 
No, I didn't. I just bring it up because Francisco has a very short little thing about oh, it. Oh, let's let's hear it. I think it's perfect. Did you play it? I I played it for a little bit, not much. It was really hard to find anything to do in that game. <laughs> mm. What was his experience in it? All right, here is what Francisco has to say about the realm. This is the one story I remember. One time, I decided to trick a fellow player into forming a party to go fight monsters, but I really just wanted to steal her money. She started following me, and when we got outside the town, I tried to pick her pocket, but I failed miserably and teleported back to my little house in embarrassment. Then I went back to the tavern where we had met, and she was back again. Awkward, to say the least. I was a pretty shitty teenager, smiley face. <laughs> oh, that's adorable. So, so the way I read this story is Francisco <laughs> develops trust issues playing uh, uh, <laughs> Sierra Network, and then visits them upon random people in later later in life. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. I guess if you're going to try stuff like that, you have to make sure that uh, you're in a, a more populous area where you can kind of lose yourself in the crowd. <laughs> well, that was the funny thing was um, if anybody hasn't played this. Imagine a 256-color Sierra game where you could customize, fully customize your character's avatar, um, but it was all 2D, and your character could basically stand there like a paper doll or a paper, paper puppet in the front of the screen. And the problem is, because it was not three-dimensional, like it was not even 3D like Ultima Online did like the isometric perspective, um, you would just stack on top of each other, if you can imagine this. So they would basically be like, well, your X or your Y position plus five, and you'll be standing behind oh. somebody else's silhouette. It was bizarre. So It's like uh, like kinging someone in check, uh, checkers? Yeah, basically. Except one top of the other? Except, That's funny. Yeah, on top of each other, except there would be a little bit of a Z order stack to it, so you could be sort of behind somebody else. Um, ah. So you can imagine how bad this looked after you got like 50 players on the same screen. It was just a disaster. Um, <laughs> and there's just like chat messages popping up all over the screen. Um, I never really got the realm. It was definitely engineered for kids. It was never really um, the, the combat or anything, and it was not very well developed. Um, I kind of automatically gravitated towards Ultima Online at that point. But, yeah, I would love to save Ultima Online for a separate episode. Mm-hmm. Well, we can maybe have a, a, a massively multiplayer episode at some point. Oh, I hope so. That's a great, that's an adorable story. Mm-hmm. All right, I am I am a little torn here, because I have a similar story, but I'm wondering whether we have enough time to talk about it with our, our clock ticking as high as it has. Ah, um, I, I, I can't wait. I, I can't. I'm very happy to forego one of my stories to hear, uh, hear one that you've got. Okay, okay, why don't I go ahead then. Um, the next game that I will talk about is a game, it's a, an exclusively multiplayer, massively multiplayer game called There. Oh, Have you heard of this one? No, I've never heard of this my whole life. Alright, I heard about this in PC Gamer Magazine. They had like two paragraphs about it and one screenshot, and it totally captivated me and I knew that I huh. had to try it. I... it. It was a free... It was very similar to Second Life. Okay. Um, and it came It came before Second Life, in fact. Wow. Um, and this was a, 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 like shortly before Second Life, maybe a year or a year and a half before Second Life. Um, so this was a game that was predominantly authored by the developers. Okay. Um, but, uh, so the, the land, unlike Second Life, the landscape was all made by the developers, right. and the majority of the uh, buildings and features of the world were made by the developers. However, excuse me, you could um, 
you could uh, develop your own materials and sell them in-game for the in-game currency, which was similar to okay. uh, Second Life. And so eventually, although like a house might be created by the developer, when you go inside the house, there might be all this player-created stuff. Okay, like, so you can uh, decorate inside but not outside. And... That's right. Um, so this game... This was uh, totally a glorified chat room sort of a thing. It's totally similar to your your tic tac toe tree chat game, <laughs> um, where you would really just thank you. yes, okay, Smaltima, That's right. <laughs> so uh, pre- the the main idea here was for socializing with people. You would make your own avatar. It was like a full body three D rendered oh, avatar really? that you could look at from any any angle. It was quite a beautiful game and a, a humongous, really cool uh, world that you could go in with really beautiful otherworldly sites. A gorgeous game. Um, and it was free of charge, but you could buy currency and you could subscribe optionally for some additional features and some vanity things and to go to some exclusive areas. I think I paid... So I beta tested it for at least a few years, and then if you paid like thirty dollars or something, then you got this lifetime oh. subscription for having been a beta tester. So I did that, um, and I don't know what kind of value that got for me, but I played it enough that it was worthwhile. Wow. I really love this game, and it helped me socially in some ways, and in other ways, I would see a group of people, uh, a, a group of people's avatars standing around talking to each other, and I would still sometimes be too shy to approach them. <laughs> Which is such an odd thing, and I I still kind of have this to this day. Sometime, if I'm if I'm tinkering around in Second Life or something, I don't really want to like interject and impose myself on some other people that are already embroiled in a conversation of some sort. It's a weird kind of a it's it's a weird environment trying to break the ice. I get it. It's so, so you basically so you would was it first person or third person? It was mostly third person. You could play it first person. Okay. Um, and it kind of had like action action game controls where you'd use the arrow keys and your uh, you'd use your mouse. You would look around with the arrow keys. Sorry, you would move with the arrow keys and you would use your mouse okay. to look around. Wow. Um, and to jump and stuff. I can't believe I missed uh, this game. I said never it never crossed my radar for some reason. Oh, I I played it for years and it was really cool. I did end up making a lot of friends and friends that were very much outside of my my realm of comfort, I would say. I met like some fifty-year-old mothers from Alabama, and I met uh, I met uh, I don't know. I met lots and lots of people. Some of them I kept in touch with for quite some time. I met like a a girl from Latin America who wanted to be a radio DJ and would practice uh, practice her uh, her uh, American accent and speaking voice, and we would critique her on it and you know, help her with her pronunciation. That was really something special. Wow. Um, the the best person that I met, the person that I clicked with the most, was a guy, uh, his name was Mike, his avatar was named Sunny Rider, and he was a keyboardist who played in a couple of different bands, wow. and uh, would do some live shows as well. Um, this was about the time that I was starting to get into DJing, okay. and so he and I, on more than one occasion, would hold these impromptu kind of concerts. So I will, I will give the preamble to say that there were two different ways that you could chat in this game. One was to type to each other, right. and a little speech bubble would appear over your head, and you could also do these little emotes and stuff. But the other way was that you could do voice chat, where you would oh, speak into kidding. a microphone... And uh, other people in the immediate vicinity around you uh, could actually hear your voice. That's crazy. So, so you could actually have, like, multi-person conversations? That's right. Wow. That's really yeah, ahead of and its time. It, it, had, 
it did an amazing job of it as well of having you know if you walked up close to some people then their speech bubbles would sort of be intertwined with each other like threaded together right. as if they were having a conversation in a chat room or something wow. and then if you were close enough and you said something then your speech your speech bubble would sort of squeeze in underneath those oh. and you you would all be kind of speaking in this vertical chat sort of a thing but like comic book speech bubbles coming out of your like with little arrows pointing from your head it was pretty clever and you could have eight or nine people or so uh, chatting in a way like this. Or you, if you spoke with each other, there would be this little waveform kind of an icon above your head. Uh, and people can hear you in this like kind of uh, low-fidelity audio, a little bit telephony and fuzzy. That's funny, yeah. So, it sounds like it was like, you know, like the real audio days or something like that. Uh, it was well. It was a, a good while after that. Anyway, oh, okay. I'm struggling to think of what year this must have been. I think it must have been around 2003, 2004. Oh, oh okay. I guess. So yeah, definitely pre-second life. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so uh, Sunny Rider and I would exploit the voice chat thing at first before later on subscribing to professional uh, Shoutcast servers. But he would play his keyboard and stick his microphone next to a speaker, or he would route the audio from his keyboard to the microphone input on his computer, wow. and then could play the keyboard and sing, and it would appear to be coming out of his character and anybody standing nearby could hear him giving this live performance of an instrument and singing That's crazy. It's like inside online of his house. <laughs> it totally was. It totally was. It's like the guy sitting in a subway station playing the guitar with the <laughs> collecting coins and stuff. It was like that. Wow. And so I myself as well could hook it up to my uh uh, I, I had a little patch cable going from uh, my sound card into the microphone in, and, and so I could uh, play uh, techno and stuff and do live mixes and stuff, and it would like be coming out of my lips in this virtual <laughs> world, which is a really cool that, thing as well. That sounds like very surreal. It's like a person like speaking with keyboard sounds coming out of their mouth. <laughs> it is. It really was. So um, as this became a little bit more popular, and by more popular I meant we might have like 20 people standing around us watching our lips move while these ridiculous sounds came out, we um, got a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, he was kind enough to pay the $50 a month or whatever it was wow. to get a higher capacity Shoutcast server. Holy shit. And we would we would go to a location. You could like register events in this kind of repository of what's what's happening now. Right. So we would reserve this location for a little bit of in-game currency, and uh, it would be like a stage with a bunch of chairs around. And uh, some of the objects that we had in our pockets were these signs, and if you click the sign, then it shows you a little HTML page, and you can have hyperlinks that would open up ah. a, a Shoutcast server, for example. Holy so shit. people would sit there and click the link, and then they would listen with Winamp or what have you <laughs> uh, to like a, a much higher bitrate version of our live uh, concerts. So he and I would have these virtual concerts. The most populous one was something like 65 people or Holy something. Crap. These 65 avatars sitting in chairs or jumping up and down and doing these emotes trying to approximate some kind of dancing. Some people would like jump up on the stage and then jump off of the stage like they were crowd surfing. <laughs> it was this unforgettable, amazing thing. I've got to find a screenshot. I have one screenshot of like a whole bunch of people standing around oh, that's amazing. Concert, it's virtual no concert video venue. That was awesome back in those days. I know. Sadly, it, it was uh, before the times where a CPU could handle playing a game and recording a video of itself oh, at the same time. That's so crazy. Um, I, I really feel like I missed out on one of, like, that, that's, like, really early on in terms of, like, that amount of interactivity. 
Relatively, it was. And then when Second Life came out, there was this small uh, holy war between there and Second Life, where there people were like, oh, we did it first. We were here first, and it's all um, content that's created by the developers, so it's a lot more polished, and there's none of right. that uh, yucky sex stuff going on, because well, there was some <laughs> yucky, yucky sex stuff. In, I'm not a prude, but there's some yucky sex stuff going on in Second Life. And, and it's like, obviously, now we know yucky sex wins out. <laughs> Up, oh, overwhelmingly so. <laughs> it became like As a it super always corporation. Will. It's like part of. It's like it's like ground into to Second Life's DNA now. Very much so, synonymous even. <laughs> so, um, before I I tell my uh, story about. Uh, well, I guess, for yeah, I have a few things I want to say about there, and I, the only thing I'll say about Second Life is, you know, after I did my my relatively successful little concerts in there, I tried to do the same thing in Second Life, where they actually have dedicated nightclubs. That's right. And you can go... Second Life is so much fun to tinker in. I love just going in there and seeing the sights. I'm still too shy to talk to anybody, but uh, it's really cool to see the sights. So there are dedicated nightclubs where a live DJ will be playing something, streaming on Shoutcast or something, and there will be like 300 avatars and mostly you know furries and and <laughs> men pretending to be women and stuff like that the creme de la creme as the second Beautiful. life audience too often is but uh, lots of pe- lots of people listening to this music in real time and what does any artist want but like a live audience to check out their stuff so i applied for the biggest nightclub in uh, second life Oh, it was called Dance Island. Right. It's still there, as I recall. Where they play a lot of house and techno music and stuff. Right. So I really slaved over this uh, demo mix that I did. I, I re-recorded it like four times, and it was an hour long, so it took me like five or six hours wow. or something just to get everything just right. And I submitted it, and uh, they gave me the most encouraging, best rejection that a DJ could possibly have, which was, I gave them their, I gave them my mix, and they're like, uh, sorry, you can't play here, you're too hardcore. Oh! I'm like, okay, that's how you let me down, that's, that's a, all that's right. That's a good rejection letter. <laughs> they said, if you can play some more mainstream kind of stuff, you'd be welcome here, because you have the skill. I'm like, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> Not compromising. I, I don't like I'll mainstream music I'll take that letter, that print much. it off, and put it on my wall. There you go. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. So that's a real badge of honor. That's the best possible rejection. And that turned into some, some few... That gave me the opportunity to participate in other online DJ gigs for a couple of years, in fact. But that's a story for another wow, time. That's uh, so uh, the story that I will tell that was similar to Francisco's about uh, the Imagination Network was uh, one of the friends that I met and hung out with all the time in there. I don't remember the name of the avatar, but uh, she was a girl about my age, and uh, we had some mutual friends, and we would do all these uh, online activities together. Like, we would go hoverboarding. We would jump on these, like, hovering <laughs> surfboard things and just go traipsing around the landscape and jumping off of things. Or we would go to these social events and be the silly ones that would make other people angry and trolling them or whatever. <laughs> or we would ride our uh, our dune buggies and jump off of things and go off of ramps and loop-de-loops and stuff like that. It was like a oh, wholesome cute. social activity for a bunch of nerds sitting alone in their basements. <laughs> you know how it is. <laughs> and so um, 
we fa- uh, this girl and I found ourselves alone in some incredible landscape one day. We we're like sitting on this log, look looking over a cliff at this humongous like seascape where the full moon was like twinkling in the sky, and there were a million constellations and stuff surrounding us. And so I uh, lean in to do the kiss emote, and uh, she leaned over and kissed me back as well. And we decided to get to know each other a little bit. And so I'm like, okay, well, my my real name's Brian, by the way. What's yours? And she's like, yeah, I'm Benjamin. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, <laughs> that was that that was our one and only kiss. Oh my god, that is so cute. <laughs> so that totally. <laughs> and it's not like I had made my avatar look anything like me. I had really exploited the engine to make my avatar like I elongated my head and made it kind of triangular, <laughs> and so I looked like this kind of space alien. <laughs> Uh, which was the the sort of a look that I was going for, and so Ben here was this like pretty raven-haired girl who was like wearing all black and had this gothy kind of look, and I was wearing all this black stuff too. So we were talking about all this goth and electronic music and stuff. I'm like, oh, we're soulmates. <laughs> you had, but then this horrible revelation comes, and you had to go in there. You had to go in there. I thought this story was going to be like, and that's how I met my wife. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, it was a, it was a, a very good lesson. <laughs> oh God, that when, was a real shocker. When we hit, when we have an episode on, on, on MMOs, oh God, do I have a horrifying story to tell about the same sort of thing? <laughs> oh goody. Well, one thing, one good takeaway that I got out of this was like, I'm like, oh, I, I never, it never really occurred to me to for a person to play the opposite right, gender right. that they are. And so Ben tells me, okay, well, how long have you been playing there for? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I must have played it for like 150 hours right. or something by now. And he's like, who's asked you want to look at for 150 hours? I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that made that made a lot more sense to me all of a sudden. But even so, that was a <laughs> that was a humongous shocker and like one of those life <laughs> life altering yeah. moments where you just have this revelation of the way things seem and the way things are. It so. turns out this game is full of other people just like me. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. So I didn't I didn't uh, exaggerate or uh, lie about my gender at all, but I might have accentuated my physical features where I don't, in fact, have a humongous triangular head and gigantic gaping eyes. <laughs> oh, my God. So that's the story. That's a fantastic that was a really awesome game, though. That was an absolutely awesome game. And I they had some sort of a revival not too long ago where they first did a poll. They had all of our email addresses of right. I don't know how many hundreds of people. I think even it was either sponsored or owned for a while okay. by Coca-Cola, oh, who really? added all of this sponsored stuff later on. Um, and I think they bought it back from Coca-Cola, and they said that they can only afford to run the servers if people are willing to pay 10 bucks a month Aww. or something, and then we can keep it up. And they did a poll, and a lot of people said yes, but there's no way I was going to pay 10 bucks a month for something I was nostalgic about yeah. a decade ago. Aww. So they did some free version of it a little while ago, and I looked around for a while. It was totally empty, and I... Uh, I, I had all these memories of uh, good times that had gone by. I still had all my like bookmarks of places that I had visited, and I went and I saw like this humongous brontosaurus skeleton that you could hoverboard on and like jump over the bones in its tail and stuff. And I saw this like big uh, cratered moon landscape that was uh, fun for using uh, my uh, my uh, buggy. There was one other vehicle which was absolutely awesome, which was the hover boat, which looked like this big inflatable raft. <laughs> it was this big inflatable raft, and it had a big uh, propeller underneath it, like a hovercraft, but it would fly, and you could have up to four other people in there, oh, plus really? the driver. 
So it was this sociable thing where you could fly around and just look at the, see the sights and find two people that were chatting on the ground and you would land on top of them and bounce off of them and disrupt their fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, oh, it, was, it was just an unforgettable, amazing, terrific game. I loved it to pieces. Wow. So I don't know what, I, that's re- what has become really of it. crazy that, yeah, I, that's, I, I can't believe that it, yeah, just, it must have been in the years where I wasn't playing a lot of online games. I remember I actually completely missed Second Life when it came out too. I didn't discover it till two or three years later when it was already in the media. Mm-hmm. So, awesome. well, I think one really big problem with there is that when you call it there, it makes your name like completely ungoogleable. Right. Exactly. So that was a big problem for it. Uh, it. That's actually the kind of a word that's often dropped from search engines for being exactly. like a, a descriptive or a conjunction or whatever, like right. those kinds of words. Oh, that's... So it was. Yeah, it, it just couldn't uh, it couldn't survive. Well, hopefully, Real shame. Hope, I'm hoping we were going to hear from one of our listeners on who's actually played there because yeah, I would love to hear more stories about it. That's really it sounds like a really massive social environment. I hope so. Yeah, folks, if you have any if you have any stories about multiplayer gaming, especially about uh, some of the the more sociable ones like the ones that we've talked about uh, today, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Um, uh, we're, we're at about the three hour mark. Yep. What do you, what do you think we ought to do around here? <laughs> um, I think we should, we should basically, why don't we say multiplayer part three would, could be our like MMO episode or something like that. Cause we have to do it. Okay, sure. Two of the three things left on my list are could be construed as mo- massively multiplayer, so why don't we do that? Okay, that sounds great. And uh, I've got a special offer uh, for our listeners who've managed to somehow survive to the three-hour point. Um, oh, that's good. That's a good reward yeah, for those the, dedicated few. We're getting to the point where I have to, like, horse and carrot uh, <laughs> people to listen to the whole thing. Um <laughs> I did something really stupid the last uh, couple of weeks, and thanks to you, we, we managed to put this all together. Um, it's a terrible idea, and it's, it's as craptacular as possible. Um, for our DOS gaming enthusiasts, uh, we've put together a, uh, a little zine in the 1990s style, so all handwritten. I actually fucking wrote these out on a typewriter, uh, like an old-school like mechanical typewriter, not even an electric one. It's just Oh, that's beautiful! Oh my God, you have no idea. Like there were when you 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 wrote an article for us for the for for the uh, zine, and I was cursing your name at about mm-hmm. one o'clock in the morning as I'm hammering away because this thing's about two thousand words long, and my fingers were physically <laughs> tired. Like I I literally was making typing mistakes. So you'll see typos all over in this article because my fingers were too tired to press down the keys. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I was giggling my head off writing up this article, though. And so it's an old-school DOS gaming zine that you would have made in high school. And it's absolutely horrific. The the articles, some of them are bad. Some of them are worse than bad. Some of them are really, really funny. And uh, it covers everything from the DOS era. Some A little bit creeps into the Windows 95, Windows 3.1 era. And uh, it's all all uh, hand-drawn and uh, written by yours truly and all, all of your friends. And uh, we cover everything in this issue from, um, oh, I don't know, uh, everything imaginable in, in, in that range. And, and it's, it comes with a special gift, courtesy of my partner. She put together something we call the cover disc, which is a, <laughs> a three-and-a-half-inch high-density floppy containing all the classics <laughs> from 1985 onwards. So That's too cool. if we could pack it into 1.4 megs, it's all there. And uh, we're really excited. So please, if you'd like, send in your snail mail address to uh, Brian, either our Squareway, at Squareway FM. You can uh, DM 
the Square Waves FM, or um, do we have an email address now? We do, squarefm at demodulated.com. Awesome. Send in your address there, and Brian will forward me the relevant information, and I will mail this off to you. <laughs> That's too cool. Free of charge, folks. Free of charge, exactly. This is, this is me bored on a Saturday night, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and my girlfriend like patiently watching me hammer away at a typewriter for, for two or three weeks. So it is ready to oh, go. Awesome. I will start shipping these out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever you're sending your snail mail addresses. I think I've got enough to make 10 or 15 copies, um, but uh, we'll, we'll see where this goes. I'm really curious to see how many people actually want one of these things. It's, it's just for fun. <laughs> so, Oh, that's super awesome. Thank you so much for working on this. Uh, Chris, oh, and for putting thank you for contributing articles. And, uh, and hopefully, if this goes well enough, maybe we'll even put out a second issue. We'll see. <laughs> oh, that's wicked. Thanks a bunch. All right. We do very much encourage you to uh, entrust us with your most private of information, yeah. like your snail mail address, folks. We would love to send <laughs> I you I mean, the, the worst thing that could happen is you'll, you'll, you'll get a really bad DOS scene in the mail. <laughs> that's that's the best and the worst that'll happen. We'll destroy your addresses after we've yeah, uh, absolutely. after you send them to us. We promise. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very, very much for joining us, everybody. Um, you can uh, you can check us out on the web at squarefm.demodulated.com. And once again, our email address is squarefm at demodulated.com. By all means, send us voicemail or email. And if you're interested in just receiving this free zine, which is just a fun little side project, uh, don't be shy to uh, send us your, your contact information. Yeah, and, and we and will happily send one to you free you know, of if charge. If I can tempt you anymore, the title of the, the, the zine I forgot to mention is the Multimedia Megapack. Compilation Volume Zero. <laughs> oh, that's great! Oh, I love it. I love it. All right. Well, we'll All see right. you guys. And you can catch us on Twitter. Yes. Twitter is Square Waves FM. Please, and uh, so, and would love to hear from you. Any comments you have on multiplayer gaming? Oh, and I forgot to mention trolls. Trolls. Um, your your last. Um, I finally got to listen to the last uh, voicemail you sent in. Um, you mentioned Silicon Knights. Um, I'll address this in the next episode, but i got a really, really special story about Silicon Knights because they're actually really, really well-known for providing these amazing multiplayer experiences, and I'll cover that in a topic called Dark Legions. Oh, that's right. That's right. All right, next time. Yes, next time. All we'll right. follow up with that. Okay, guys, thank you so, so much for tuning in. We love you like crazy, and uh, have an exceptional week. We will talk to you then. Love you guys too much. Talk to you soon. Bye. Too much. Bye.